Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. critical of the FDA from time to time and with good reason. Like many government bureaucracies, I think they do certain things too slowly. I think they do other things too inefficiently. I think their judgment is questionable in other areas. But I have to tell you, there is an advisory board, a panel of advisors to the FDA, a couple of days ago, voted on something that I have been railing against for literally years, and I am shocked that it's taken this long before there's been some movement on this. Now, a panel of advisors to the FDA voted unanimously on Wednesday that the benefits of making a birth control pill available without a prescription outweigh the risks. This is a huge step in this decades-long push to make oral contraception obtainable over-the-counter in the United States. I have never understood why it's not obtainable. I have dated and been married to people that have taken a birth control pill, and they would need to go and get a prescription. And I was just always in awe of why this is not something that can be safely administered in an over-the-counter manner. So now the FDA is going to decide over the summer whether or not to go forward with allowing oral contraception to be sold over-the-counter rather than through prescription. And not that my vote means anything, but I am going to be loudly advocating for the FDA to move forward with over-the-counter birth control. What do you think? I'd especially love to hear from some of the women in our audience at 800-848-9222. And I'd also love to hear from some of the doctors and pharmacists in our audience. Why is this something that they have uh, made prescription for as long as they have? I don't even understand why my my uh, psoriasis, my scalp psoriasis ointment needs to be, or it's not really an ointment, it's more of a foam. Why that needs to be prescription. I really think that uh, that's something that could easily be administered over the counter, just like cortisone or something along those lines. But if the FDA approves non-prescription sales of this medication called Opil uh, over the summer, it could significantly expand access to contraception, especially for young women and those who have difficulty dealing with the time, 
the costs or logistical hurdles involved in visiting a doctor. I am obviously not a young woman, oh, young woman, but who knows? Maybe someday I will identify as a young woman. But I will tell you, just in terms of getting my psoriasis medication for my, my scalp, part of the reason that I don't have it right now is because it took me so long to go to the doctor. And they basically, I would call the doctor and they said, I would say, can you call another one in for me? They'd call it in. I'd call again in a few months. They said, no, we'd like you to come in. And then by the time I can go and make an appointment and get there, uh, all of a sudden two years have gone by and I am just flaking like I have, uh, I have a, a blizzard snowstorm all over my shoulders because I've allowed my prescription to lapse. And I can imagine, imagine that's the case for a lot of women that might be busy and don't have the time to go to see a doctor and get a prescription filled in order to get their birth control. Why is this something that needs to be prescription? I don't think it does. Tell me if you agree. Tell me if you disagree. 800-848-9222. Catherine Curtis, who is a health scientist with the CDC, said, I think Opil has the potential to have a huge positive public health impact. I would agree. And uh, approval on this is not a foregone conclusion, even though I think it should be. But FDA scientists who analyzed the data submitted by the pills maker, H.R.A. Pharma, raised concerns about whether women with medical conditions that should preclude them from taking the pill, primarily breast cancer and other conditions, would follow the warnings and avoid the product. Well, look, I understand that. But if the product is has the warning on it, at some point it's the patient's responsibility. Maybe when I just I don't I don't I don't see the need to make over the counter to make oral contraception something that's prescription only. Particularly this O pill which by all indications are is very safe. The agency's reviewers also questioned whether a company study demonstrated that consumers would follow the label's directions to take a pill at roughly the same time every day and use another form of contraception if they happen to miss a dose. Again, so think about what we're saying. We're saying the public is too stupid not only to read labels that have warnings on it, but they're too stupid to read the instructions that come with the medication. So because the public is too stupid to do that, we have to make this prescription not over the counter. Well, who's to say that they're going to follow the instructions properly if it's a prescription? No guarantee there either. 800-848-9222. What do you think? I'd love to hear from the medical providers, or nurses, doctors, physicians' assistants, pharmacists in our audience, and I'd love to hear from the women in our audience, 800-848-9222. I mean, everyone's welcome to call, but I'd especially love to. We'll jump those folks to the front of the line. Billy is in Hoboken, and I think I, when I was going to Billy, I accidentally disconnected Alice. Alice, if you are still hearing me, call back. I didn't mean to disconnect you. Billy in Hoboken, what's on your mind? Hey, Frank, I love your show. Thank you. I listen every night. Um, I think the men could also take a, a pill every day. Like, why do women always have to do everything? You know what I mean? 
Well, look, I, I I think there are there are moving forward with an oral contraceptive for men as well. But men can go out and get a condom, and they don't need a prescription for a condom. So there is an over the counter medica- uh, There is an over the counter contraceptive for men that they, that's readily available. But currently, women, as far as I know, they don't have that option. Right, I I agree. Uh, it should be over the counter. Well, yeah, thank you, Billy. I appreciate that, and uh, we'll see what happens. 800-848-9222. Alice is in Hoboken. Alice, I, I, or in Woodside, my fat finger accidentally disconnected oh, you. I'm sorry okay. about that. All right, thank you. Okay, I don't. I think you should have a prescription. You know why? Your doctor has to know your medical history. And there's a risk of stroke if you take birth controls and you're a smoker. And years ago, this happened, by the way, in New York City, young black women had the birth control patch, and they literally dropped dead. Well, I'm not familiar with the birth control patch incident, but uh, I I certainly believe you. But um, was that an over-the-counter situation or was that a prescription? No, no, they were getting it from Planned Parenthood, and I think they didn't do good intake. I see. Well, so I think, though, the fact that the the women drop dead while taking that birth control patch, doesn't that show that if it's a prescription, that's not necessarily a foolproof way to avoid that sort of a thing? No, 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 it isn't. But you're more likely to have problems if you go to a pharmacist who, again, doesn't know you, doesn't know your family history, doesn't know your medical history. And there are links. And I have to research this between birth control pills and breast cancer. Well, there are. Yeah, there there are uh, certain women that should absolutely. And that they that's one of the reasons this might not get approved. And I'm glad you mentioned that, Alice. Thank you for the call. Um, there are and there are risks with this. But you know what? There are risks with other over the counter medication. You know, there are risks of bleeding in terms of aspirin. There are risks of all sorts of other things when it com- that are over-the-counter that are sold readily available. That's why we have warnings. And uh, I see what Alice is saying, but I think the value of making this available without a prescription is, in my judgment, far better and far outweighs the risks of uh, of. People that might not pay attention to the warning labels. I don't know. Uh, tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up on the program. Next hour, Dane Wigington is going to be here. You know, it's funny. We did that interview on, I think, Thursday morning with Mick West on chemtrails. And he was sort of a, a chemtrail debunker. And a lot of people didn't like what he had to say, and they asked me to have on somebody on the other side of the equation. And look, whatever issue we're talking about, whether we're talking aliens, whether we're talking life after death, whether we're talking uh, exorcisms, and whether we're talking vaccines, I'm always happy to have on someone on the other side of, um, you know, what one guest says. So uh, I put Dane Wigington on my list, and then... When I was researching stuff involving Robert F. Kennedy Jr. over the weekend, I started going through some of the episodes of his podcast. And lo and behold, just so happens that one of the people that Robert Kennedy Jr. had on was this fellow, Dane Wigington. 
He is a, a researcher into something called geoengineering. So he's going to join us next hour, and we're going to get into we're going to get into it. He has a different take, I think, on the situation than Mick West does. And then in two hours, very much looking forward to talking with Jason Cole. Jason Cole is a sports journalist and the author of a very funny new book. I'm not even sure if you can call it a book. It's more of a booklet. It's called Shut Up, Your Kid Is Not That Great. It's pretty funny. We'll go through the mail as well. If you have uh, some email that you'd like to send me and have it get read on the program, you can email me at frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. It could be positive. It could be negative, it could be funny, it could be a question, and uh, we'll try and get to as many of your emails as we can at the top of next hour before we talk to Dane Wigington. I'll tell you one thing uh, that I really uh, got a kick out of, and then I'll get back to your calls in just a minute. I, you know, I could kind of take or leave Taylor Swift's music. I, I like some of her songs. My wife plays her music all the time, and she has become convinced that Carmine, our son, really likes Taylor Swift. So she, uh, so we have it on in our house all the time. So uh, uh, she was performing in Philadelphia the other day on this tour that she's doing. And all of a sudden, she's in the middle of one of her songs, the song I've heard a hundred times because my wife plays it constantly, Bad Blood. And then she appeared, based on the video that's available, to help a concert goer in the crowd in Philadelphia. Videos from the show at the Lincoln Financial Field showed Swift interrupting the song to defend a person in the crowd. This is a little bit of uh, what one of the videos posted captures. So she's saying she's fine. She's yelling into the crowd, noticeably perturbed by what she's seen. She paused again to say she wasn't doing anything before yelling, hey, stop, two more times. So it's unclear from the videos what transpired in the crowd to promote the reaction. But then uh, apparently there was a mom, Caitlin, uh, Caitlin Gabel, who posted something on TikTok talking about how Taylor Swift was essentially intervening between her and a security guard. Okay. I was the girl from the that, that Taylor talked to last night. Basically, the guard had been, like, harassing our group all night just to, like, he just kept telling us not to touch the rail. And, like, every time we did anything, he was, like, on top of us. We're dancing. We're having fun. And he didn't like it. And Taylor noticed that I was having fun and that he didn't like it. And she didn't like it. And then he basically, like, got escorted out. And then they offered us free tickets for tonight. It wasn't this big, crazy thing. It was, like, just a bunch of girls having a good time. And he he didn't want us to have fun. So I think that's nice. Uh, they got they got free tickets after a security guard was, uh, was rude to them. And I, good for Taylor Swift. Because had she not intervened from the stage and said something... 
I don't know that uh, that would have ended with, as happily as it did for those fans there. All right, 800-848-9222. Jacqueline is in Queens. Jacqueline, what do you think of the idea of over-the-counter birth control? Jacqueline. All right, Jacqueline's got something else to do. 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Dr. Neil, Frank. Dr. Neil tonight. Dr. Neil, thank you. Excuse me. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, uh, the one thing you said was you, that I think women are too stupid to be able to take the pill. And in actuality, they are stupid. It's 2023. But if they don't know proper contraception by now, uh, it, it, there's no reason to really take the pill. They should know they shouldn't become pregnant. They should know how to avoid it by now without without pills. Well, but, but well, no, Neil, I think that's really unfair. First of all, there's all sorts of reasons that women take um, uh, take the pill. Some take it because um, it can uh, uh, balance their hormones in a certain a cer- certain manner. Some uh, take it uh, because it has an effect on their uh, on their period. Uh, some uh, take it because that's their chosen method of contraception. So if that were at, why ever they're taking it, if that's their chosen me- method of contraception why shouldn't they be able to get it without a prescription well you know i don't i don't believe you're talking about uh birth control pills you're talking about an abortion pill right no 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 i don't know where you got that from it's a it's a birth control pill it's an oral contraceptive Uh, oh all right i thought it was like a one and done like the the morning after pill no, it's something that you have to take at regular doses. That's why uh, one of the concerns that some of these FDA people have is that if you miss a dose, you then have to take a, another type. And they're afraid that women won't uh, necessarily um, be able to follow that instruction. Thank you for the call, Neil. Uh, I must have been unclear because uh, Neil's usually pretty, you know, he's pretty uh, astute with what his uh, – his take is on things. So I must not have done a good job explaining that. So if you have a comment on that or anything else, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Because, baby, now we got bad blood. You know we used to be mad. Shiny, now it's all rusted. Did you have to hit me where I'm weak, baby? I could 
This is uh, Taylor Swift singing Bad Love. This is the song that she interrupted to shout at a security guard who was giving one of her fans a, a hard time. So I say good for her. I think that is uh, that is very nice. So unsurprising, uh, un, somewhat surprisingly, I'll say, over the weekend, my wife and I are going through our next couple of... Um, weekends and months and she says boy you got a lot of stuff going on at the end of may i said i know i know she says well you know you don't really have this much this weekend you don't really have this this much that weekend and then we spent a big part of our saturday both of us outside in our uh, backyard power washing power washing our patio power washing our fence and you know i think we made a lot of significant progress and Put a lot of effort out there and got the backyard kind of into shape. And w- once you see the backyard kind of going into uh, summer mode, you get into summer mode yourself. So my wife says to me at one point over the weekend, she says, hey, do you think that we should have a- another barbecue this year? And I said, sure. Sure, why not? We did it last year. It was a smashing success. Even Matt Blaze came. Alex Barnard came. I got to meet his girlfriend for the first time. And uh, we did it the, the the previous year. It was a little over-attended that year, but we made some changes that uh, Rachel was very happy with. And uh, I said, sure, why not? Well, she said, well, the only day in theory that we could even do it, we're booked almost every weekend in the summer with something. The only weekend that we could do it is June 10th. She's, what? She said, do you think that we can get something, a barbecue together by June 10th? I mean, you'd really have to get the wheels in motion now. I said, absolutely. I said, we just have to buy food and invite people. And then whoever comes, comes. And whoever doesn't, doesn't. She said, oh, well, we're going to have to vet the, indi- the invite list and so forth. And I said, no, no, no. Let me just... It used the approved invite list from last year that you approved, and let's invite those people. And she said, no, 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 that was still too many people. So uh, let me vet the invite list again, and we will, if uh, we will, if we can get this together, if we can get a pr- new approved invite list, get invites out tomorrow. So. Um, Matt Blaze, Kenneth, and Alex, all of whom were invited to last year's barbecue, made it to the approved invite list. I am hoping that you're going to be invited again this year, but there's there's honestly no guarantees. I don't know where you fall on the Rachel chopping block, so so we'll see. Good luck to you. Good luck. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Um, but a, a couple of people no longer work here that were invited uh, last year. So maybe we can cross them off. Maybe that we can create a couple of spaces that way. Although they were good company, a lot of them. So so we'll see. I know you're you're on pins and needles awaiting this invitation, right, Matt? Uh, of course I am. Yeah. Though I'm probably not going to go. All right. Well, I respect that. I respect that. I'll, you said uh, June 10th. And now, me, I, you know, because Sunday I come in a little earlier now. It's my Saturday's my my, my, my one day. And I got a backyard. I don't blame to, you. To uh, I don't blame you. Take care of him. Yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. So I'll just tell you now. Yeah, you know, there you not? go. Uh, so now, can I? So this is open space. Can I cross you off the approved invite cross list? Cross me off the approved invite list. All right. Open you, up the you're space. Off. 
Now, now uh, Christian Matos, who used to work here, can he can he does work he, here? He still does. Yeah. Oh, good. Is He's he here on the weekend? Oh, I don't, you don't see, see him. him during the yeah. weekend. All right. Well, good. I like him. So then we'll invite him. Then we'll give him your spot. Um, Kenneth, w- w- how are you looking for this June tenth uh, extravaganza? It's a bit of a toss up. All right. Toss. All right. Well, let, well, let me know before invites go out. So this way, maybe we can give your spot to. Uh, <laughs> to, I don't know, Christian Arnold or something, right. somebody else. All right, um, 800-848-9222. I'll tell you what I am legitimately annoyed with is I don't know what goes on with the mugs here, okay? I brought in a mug from home. I brought in a mug that that does two things, that it was that is large, large enough for me to get a full 12-ounce pour of hot liquid so that I can have a nice cup of tea during the during the show so that my vocal cords are appropriately lubricated and I got one from Monroe College because I was once a guest lecturer at Monroe College and um, those poor kids I mean they had to listen to me and as my, I didn't get paid or anything so as my they gave me sort of a gift bag and they gave me this beautiful nice big old mug and they gave it to me and I've been using it and I always put it in the same spot underneath the coffee machine every day. And it's the first thing I grab when I come in. And it's the last thing that I put away when I leave. So I come in today. It's not there. Not there. And, I mean, I could have used one of the other mugs that I have here. I have a Patrick Henry mug that a listener gave me. I have a Frank Morano mug that I bought. I have a couple of other mugs. But they, they really can only accommodate, I'd say, 9 or 10 ounces at most. I need a 12-ounce mug. So I found another one. I don't know whose this is. It says FAU, Dr. Richard Stoller, of, uh, uh, who's a dentist at Florida Atlantic University, team dentist at Florida Atlantic University. So apparently this is a dentist in Florida. I don't know whose mug this is. It's the same size and the same color as my Monroe College mug. But it is um, it is not uh, it is not my Monroe College mug. So I am going to when I finish this with today, I am going to rinse this out and I am going to put this back exactly where I found it. And to the person or persons that have absconded with my Monroe College mug, I would expect the same courtesy. And I'll, speaking of courtesy, I'll tell you who I who I suspect here. Curtis Lewa, because in our brief interaction yesterday, when I was walking, I, 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 it's the only time I saw Curtis yesterday. Well, I saw him tw- twice. He was walking around some very shady looking guys before the show. And then during the show, um, I, I, by the way, who were those guys? Do we have any idea? We, no one knows who those, those guys are. No idea. No, no one knows. You, okay. know, you know Curtis. He doesn't introduce anybody, yeah. doesn't say anything. All I know is these two guys were taking pictures and video of him, and that's all I know. I have no idea who they are, where they're from, anything. Yeah, jeez. All right. Well, so he's walking around these two shady-looking guys, and they're they're doing their thing. And then, um, and you know what? I met those guys twice. I met them once when I came in. And what do you do when you see people? You say, hello. And then they say, hello. And then one of them made fun of me for carrying the New York Times. They said, is that allowed in here? I said, oh, okay. Hi. I already read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post. Thank you. Well, I'm going to take this. Uh, oh, come here. Where? So Alex Barnard found my Monroe College mug. Where did you find that? It was, just, it was in the studio I always work in. 
Why was it in there? I honestly had no. I didn't even know this was yours. That, this is mine. Let it be. Okay, I withdraw my condemnation of Curtis. You yeah. probably and it looks, left it in there. No, I I didn't because it's clean, right? So if I would have gone in there, um, I would have been still drinking it, and this has already been rinsed out by someone. Uh-huh. That's my uh-huh. well. Okay, it, it looks like it was broken. Did you uh, at one point and then glued back together? I don't know if uh, it does look broken. Right? Look, it yeah. does look cracked. Somebody broke this mug and Humpty Dumpty style tried to put it back together again. Look at this. Who does this? What goes on when I am not here? It's madness. It's madness. It's people running around, drinking all the water, breaking mugs. Is it because our owner is Greek? They think it's okay to just throw dishes and mugs all over the place like a, like a Greek wedding? Oh, my. All right. So um, wow. at the top of the hour, I will return Dr. Richard Stoller's mug with the gratitude, with my gratitude to whosoever mug this is. And uh, I, uh, I will withdraw possibly my condemnation of, uh, of Curtis Lewa. All right. Uh, eight, for this, not for anything else, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Eight open lines, 800-848-9222. We'll go through the mail uh, in a little bit. And if you have uh, comments, questions, thoughts on anything that we've been talking about or anything that you'd like to see us talk about, I'm happy to uh, to try and address it. But anyway, the reason I was suspicious of Curtis was I was walking back from the coffee machine with my Monroe College mug. And Curtis says to me, says, oh, uh, next thing you know, we're going to be hearing you complain about someone taking your mug. That's what he said. Unsolicited. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the next day, my mug is missing. It strikes me as very suspicious. Okay. Because he was here, you know, an hour or two after I left the air. And he was here for hours during the day. So I don't know. I could absolutely see something uh Something going on here. We are on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And uh, we'd encourage you to join our Facebook group as well at uh, facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. Chris is in Yonkers. Hello, Chris. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm well. Now, do you know that the birth control pill uh, destroys human embryos? Did I know that the birth control destroys uh, the birth control pill destroys human embryos? I did not know that. Right now, that's homicide, right? Well, I I, I would have to look at. The, I don't think legally it is homicide. No. Well, no, no, it's not legally homicide. I'm just talking medically homicide. Yeah, I I uh, I don't think so. I uh, I don't think I don't think that's I don't think that's accurate. I'd have to see uh, okay. something on that, but no, I don't think that's accurate. Okay, uh, human life begins at conception. Uh, the birth control pill kills human beings. Um, logically speaking, the value of human life doesn't change over time. Okay, we're all equal, so the embryo and the zygote is equal to you. You had the same right to life. When you are a single cell, as you have now, it is not a medical act to ki- for your mother to kill you before you're born. Well, what the about before I'm conceived, this. though? I'm sorry. What about before I'm conceived? Oh, that's 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 a different matter. Well, but isn't that what the birth control pill does? Isn't it? Doesn't it prevent? Sure. Usually, it is. 
It's not meant to commit homicide, but it does. But I, I don't understand where you're getting this homicide idea from. I, I just I don't get I don't get well, that. Well, life begins at conception. Right, right. So but you this prevents to... conception. Sure, it does. But you can find this out quickly with a Google search that that the that the birth control pill also by accident, not by design, it destroys the embryo after conception. In addition to trying to prevent conception, sometimes by accident, it kills the embryo. Um, okay, so I'll I'll have to look into that. But um, oh, sure. If that's the case then by your logic, then it shouldn't even be available through prescription either, right? Uh, some pro-lifers believe that. Right, but so... Now, there's other pro-lifers, there's other pro-lifers who believe there might be other reasons to heal the woman or help the woman with the pill, but I doubt it. And no, it shouldn't be on the, on the market. It shouldn't be what? What was the last thing you said? It shouldn't be on the market if it kills human beings. Yeah, I, I, I would uh, – if you could send me something on that, Chris, I would love to read it. But based on what I'm seeing now, that's just simply not the case. I don't think you're accurate on the science. I don't think you're accurate on the law. I don't think you're uh, morally or ethically in the right here. Uh, but uh, look, I'm, I'm not pretending to be an expert but if what you're claiming is that a prescription birth control pill is uh, allows people to commit homicide, which is exactly what you're saying, I'm not uh, putting not putting words into your mouth at all, then that's not something that should be permitted through prescription either. But if it's something that prevents pregnancy before conception and it's l- used by literally millions of women f- through a prescription, Safely, I think it should be able to be used in an over-the-counter manner as well. That's all I'm saying. All right, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. You know, we were talking about uh, Taylor Swift a moment ago, and there's another uh, female performer whose work I don't know as well, although um, she's very popular as a singer. She was on American Idol. And now she hosts a very popular talk show, and it's uh, Kelly Clarkson. And there are there was this big article in uh, I don't know where it was initially. It might have been it might have been Rolling Stone or it might have been the yeah it was, no it was the New York Post. And evidently the Kel- the Kelly Clarkson show is under fi- which is one of the most popular TV talk shows in America. It's a syndicated show. It's on hundreds of stations around the country, watched by literally millions. And this show is under fire for apparently, oh no, it was Rolling Stone, not not the New York Post, Rolling Stone, for creating a toxic work environment that has left staffers feeling overworked, underpaid, and traumatized. One current and 10 former employees of this uh, daytime TV talk show spoke with Rolling Stone for this bombshell expose that was just published on Friday in an effort to pull back the curtain of what they refer to, Rolling Stone refers to, as the harmful culture allegedly taking place behind the scenes. The staffers claimed that they were bullied and intimidated by producers, and it began to negatively affect their mental health. One person said... 
I remember going up on the roof of the stage to cry. Wow. Being like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? Why am I putting myself through this? One former worker who, like the others, spoke on condition of anonymity for fear of retribution recalled to the magazine. You know, it's so difficult to know if the problem is the culture of a show or a workplace or if you're dealing with a couple of people who are very sensitive or have come from a different era. We used to have um, a, a couple of people that worked here at the, at the network that we're at that would break down into tears if, uh, if under any circumstance, right? I mean, and I don't think it was anything that we, we were doing that was creating an abusive or a toxic environment at all. But I think those folks would have, uh, they would have been crying if they worked anywhere. So I don't know if the problem is the Kelly Clarkson show, but another former employee told the Rolling Stone that uh, they had to see a psychiatrist for the first time in their life because they truly couldn't handle it mentally. I get a stressful work environment. I understand. Uh, You know, uh, the word toxic in terms of workplace, I think, is so uh, overused these days. I think sometimes, especially with young people, and again, I'm, I don't know what went on here, so I'm not speaking to this specific instance. But I think especially with young people, you have a, a lot of young folks that are used to being coddled. And then all of a sudden, they go and work in a private sector business where there are rigors and demands of a, a regular schedule and stuff that's got to get done. and all the, and, and it can be very stressful. And all of a sudden, they don't deal with that stress well. So, um, and look, if you find you, you're not a good fit for any workplace, whether it's the Kelly Clarkson show or, or our show or whatever, you shouldn't work there for your own sake. I wouldn't want to stay in a place like that. That wasn't good for you. So one ex-worker called working on the Kelly Clarkson show by far the worst experience I've ever had in my entire life. Now, that's saying quite a bit. This person might have been dealing with deaths in the family. They might have been dealing with sickness. And working on the Kelly Clarkson show was the worst experience they've ever had in their entire life. It deterred me from wanting to work in daytime ever again. When I say I was traumatized, I was really traumatized. But aside from the mental trauma they allegedly experienced, several staffers said the show didn't even pay them enough to be able to live solely on those salaries. Many claim to Rolling Stone that they uh, took on other jobs as babysitters, dog walkers, and Uber Eats drivers to help pay their bills. However, the employees across the board noted that they do not believe the show's host, Kelly Clarkson, is aware of how dismal her workplace is because they believe she's been shielded from it. So let's think about that, okay? All of these people quoted in this Rolling Stone piece, they all say Kelly Clarkson was nice and that she has no idea what's going on with her producers mistreating everyone. Wouldn't you think at some point, especially if once you're leaving the show, but even the person that's still working on the show, wouldn't you think, let me try to have a conversation with Kelly Clarkson about this. Let me at least make her aware of what's going on. 
Don't you think she would have preferred that and then maybe being able to make some of these changes necessary that they're talking about making now rather than having 11 people anonymously run to one of the biggest entertainment media outlets in the country and trash you and make your show look bad? I mean, if this if I were in Kelly Clarkson's position, I absolutely would like uh, somebody to come to me rather than run to a media out and say, you know, that Frank Morano doesn't know what's going on, but the other side of midnight is just such a toxic work environment. We have to see a psychiatrist and all sorts of things. Uh, One former staffer claimed to the magazine, NBC is protecting the show because it's their new moneymaker, but Kelly has no clue how unhappy her staff is. So tell her. Another person called Clarkson fantastic and said she is a person who never treats anyone with anything but dignity and and is incredibly appreciative. So, again, I just think while she's being fantastic and and saying, I appreciate you, I appreciate you, wouldn't you say, you know, your producer Fred over there, not a good guy. A lot of people are unhappy with him. Wouldn't you think she'd want to know? And it sounds like she's pretty approachable from her staff. Another person said, I would be shocked if she knew. I'd be floored if she knew the staff wasn't getting paid for two weeks of Christmas hiatus. Um, And so now uh, Kelly Clarkson has uh, put something out on social media that says she's going to deal with this. That says that uh, she's going to make the producers go through some sort of a training Um, she wants to find out if anyone is feeling unheard or disrespected, and that's great. And that's what I think she would have done had people made her aware of the environment that seemed to drive so many people crazy. But now she's in a defensive position. Her show is already on the receiving end of a negative article in Rolling Stone, and uh, I just don't think these staffers handled this correctly. I'm not sure how an article like this comes to be. I doubt that 11 staffers decided to independently reach out to the same media outlet and all say the same thing. So this was clearly a coordinated effort on somebody's part, either probably the former staffers, but maybe on the part of the Rolling Stone reporter. I don't know. Uh, But I don't think these staffers handled it well. And let me be on record as saying, if that's ever the case with me, that I would like to be informed of anybody that is... Uh, this unhappy. Hey, um, any any awareness of uh, toxicity on our show as far as you're aware, Matt Place? Not as far as I, I'm aware of, but if somebody did feel that, how are they going to go tell the host? Like, Because they're going to fear for their job because the host isn't in charge of the one that's hiring them and in charge of them. So they're going to fear, oh, yeah, if I go tell Kelly, then Kelly's going to go to so-and-so, and and then I'm going to end up getting fired. I hear you. I hear you. But I think um, if the you could, one, after you make the decision to leave, you could have a word with her, I'm sure, in your last day, your last week, have sort of an exit interview. Two, I would think if you wanted to send her or write her an anonymous letter, that would, I think, go over much better than just this uh, anonymous quote to the Rolling Stone magazine. Um, and and three, I think that there are, uh, I think there are a lot of offices that are reluctant to get rid of people in, in that environment. And four, 
10 of these 11 people all left anyway. So it, I don't know. It sounds like based on the kind of uh, complaints they had, they would have welcomed getting getting let go. I mean, they, you know. But- And with all that, at least they said, Kelly Clarkson's great and fantastic. We we love her as a staff. And I am not aware of any toxicity here with with our show. But I'll tell you, Frank, you're the last person that would send me to the psychiatrist's office. I would have a lot more things besides you that I'd go to the psychiatrist. Oh, no, I I agree with that. I I (laughs) totally agree with that. That is, yeah, you've got, you're you're a psychiatrist's dream. uh, That's for sure. There's a long list. There's a scroll of uh, of things that are, are bringing you to the psychiatrist office before me. In fact, I think I I may be calming you down significantly with your other your other issues. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to comment, one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. We have uh, eight open lines. You're welcome to comment. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. midnight. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You know the bed feels warmer sleeping here alone. You know I dream in color and do the things I This is Kelly Clarkson, Stronger, who apparently presides over a show that is driving people to the roof to cry and driving other people to the psychiatrist, and it's driving everybody to become drivers for Uber. But uh, apparently she's delightful. Sure sounds delightful. Hey, uh, what do you think the most popular baby boy's name is for the year, for last year? Technically. Any guesses, Mr. Uh, Matt Plays? Liam. Oh, you, you're right. I totally took a guess. I swear. You're I, absolutely I did not right. All right. Uh, you did well with that. Uh, any guess as to the most popular female name in America? Emma. That is number two. Ooh. That is not bad. Close. You're spending time with a lot of babies. Oh. Hey, um, uh, Matt, uh, Kenneth, any guesses as to the top female name? I'll go with Michelle. 
Michelle, not even in the top ten. No. Bella? What was your one? Bella? No, no, no. Bella did not make the cut. Maria. Oh, I- I'll tell you, though, Isabella is number six. All Isabella right, is number six. Olivia? Olivia is number one. There you go. How do you know so many babies? <laughs> nice guy. Know. That's pretty good. <laughs> All the, all the time you're spending at the psychiatrist's office, you must be overhearing all these women complain about their children. Must be. Must be. Yeah. So uh, for the the most popular baby boy name for the sixth year in a row in the United States of America is Liam. And the uh, the top of the girls list for the fourth year in a row is Olivia. That is according to the Social Securities, uh, the Social Security Administration. This year's top ten lists have just one new name from last year. Everything else is the same. The new addition is Luna. Luna. Uh, as far as the rest of the top ten baby boys' names, going backwards from ten, you have Theodore, Benjamin, both presidents, right? Uh, Lucas, Henry, William, Elijah, James, Oliver, Noah and Liam. And uh, counting down from 10 on the girls' most popular names, you have Luna, Evelyn, Mia, Ava, Isabella, Sophia, Amelia, Charlotte, Emma, Olivia. See, I would not, if if we had another baby, I would lobby very aggressively against giving one of these super popular names. I think it's the most boring thing in the world where you, you have a class and there's a uh, 12 people named Michael in the class, or 10 Daniels, five Genas. I like a nice, unusual name. You know, I I like a name that uh, is distinct, that is unique, that you're not going to see five of in the same class. Some of these names are fine. I uh, My friend Jill has a daughter named Olivia and a daughter named Emma. I know uh, someone else named uh, Charlotte. Amelia, actually, if we had had a girl... That was one of the names that Rachel really liked was was Amelia. But um, we did not have a girl, obviously. So until young Carmine chooses to identify as a girl, he's not going to be Amelia. So there you have it. Those are the most popular names in America. You know, it's interesting. I read uh, the uh, Malcolm Gladwell book, The Tipping Point, many years ago. And it's a fascinating book. All, all of Gladwell's books are fascinating. But this is a fascinating book about how... Certain things bring about societal change and why sometimes a couple of little things make the difference in something being the tipping point, right? And I just wonder, what was it that made Liam such a popular name? I mean, it's been a popular name for the last six years. Is What happened? Usually you can point to some sort of societal trend or cultural trend, a, a celebrity with that name. I mean, maybe Liam Neeson is very popular, but did Liam Neeson become so much more popular six years ago than he was, say, 15 or 20 years ago? I don't think so. It was Liam Hemsworth. Uh, oh, is that Thor or Captain America? Yeah, well, Thor, but Thor. he has a brother. Who, who's Thor, Chris or Liam? I don't, I don't know. Ask Kenny. I think it's Chris, Chris Hemsworth. And so who's Liam Hemsworth? It's his brother. He's also an actor. But what was he in? Uh, I'd have to look it up. Are people naming their child for him, though? Maybe. Uh, Maybe they just like the name Liam when they go, oh, that's a nice name. No, I'm sure that's what it is. Yeah, not for him. But how do enough people uh, get exposure to these Liams 
to begin this Liam copycat syndrome. That's what uh, that's what I'm sort of curious about is what was the Liam tipping point? What was the Olivia tipping point? I don't and, know. And also Liam Hemsworth was married to Miley Cyrus at one point. Right, but you don't see uh, you don't see Miley at the uh, on the top of any of these lists, right? True. So, all right, uh, 800-848-9222. In two minutes, we will go through your mail, snail mail, email, whatever kind of mail, and uh, we will uh, address as many of your calls as we can. And then uh, we will go through uh, and get a rebuttal on the chemtrail issue from somebody that's uh, very, very well regarded in this area, Dane Wigington. So a little bit later. Jason Cole, sports journalist and the author of the book, Shut Up, Your Kid Is Not That Great. Well, maybe the reason he's not that great is he's got a name like Liam and he's one of 50 Liams in his graduating class. You never know. Uh, 800-848-9222 on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-L. Until then, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. usually get to your written correspondence this early in the program, but we have a lot to get to. So uh, why don't we go ahead and get started? If you want to send in an email, you can do so at frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. I'm going to try and get to as many of these messages as we can and uh, try and give them give as uh, good a response as I can, as thoroughly, but as quickly as we can, uh, because we're going to talk geoengineering with Dane Wigington coming up in about 23 minutes. I'm also going to ask him about the issue that um, we discussed the other day, the issue of chemtrails or contrails, and what the story is there. But there's a lot of other areas that we can explore with Dane Wigginton. I'm looking forward to that. But first... June writes me, thanks for the info. Got a check from the controller's office. Yes, that's right. I told a whole bunch of listeners, I told all of my New York area listeners how they could get unclaimed funds, how they could get money that was owed to them. And I've been 
hearing from a lot of people that have gotten that money. And uh, so far, none of them have offered to share it with me. Okay. Uh, John writes, exercise is good, but running is bad over the long term due to high impact, in my opinion. See if your dad can take up swimming laps. It has basically zero impact. Well, he swims also. Also, regarding your denunciation of ransomware hackers that encrypt data and hold it hostage, did you know that in some parts of the world, people report to jobs in office buildings to work for ransomware companies? Also, these groups and companies rely on their reputation and need to be trustworthy so that the victim feels confident that if they pay the trustworthy ransomware company, the data will be unencrypted. Yes, I was aware of that, uh, John. Thank you. Uh, let's see here. This from the world of Facebook. Lewis or Luis writes, why don't you dye your hair looking like a clown? Just saying. Um, hmm. You know, I don't know. I do have a gray streak in my in the center of my hair, and that gray streak has become more pronounced. I don't know. I, I don't. I, I kind of like the way it looks. I don't think it makes me look like uh, like a clown. But uh, if enough people say that it does, maybe I will. Maybe I will change. Maybe I will get rid of that. It's kind of becoming my uh, my hallmark. I think. Right. It's. It, I, I think it's distinguished. I like it. Uh, all right. Here we got in the world of email. Paul writes, hi, Frank. Interesting discussion on McDonald's. Incidentally, McDonald's previously used those red heating lamps and a timed number letter system to keep food warm. After a prescribed amount of time, the food needed to be discarded. To minimize waste, they created a warming tray system. I agree with one of your associates that McDonald's never has hot food. It's always warm. So I'm perplexed that this incident ever occurred. Anyway, I agree with you and the crew that the parents should have supervised the child. Also, McDonald's coffee is scalding hot. Good evening. I think they actually made some changes to the coffee process after that lawsuit a few years ago. Uh, they have a different lid situation. They have a different temperature gauge on the coffee machine. See the documentary Hot Coffee. It gets into some of the changes that they made. Karen writes, Hello, Frank. Jeffrey Lickman is an engaging guest. Whether he's stating his opinion, reporting on facts, or telling a story, there is so much vibrancy and color to it in his voice. As a listener, he makes knowledge entertaining. It's a gain when he's scheduled and a plus that he'll stay up for your audience. Thank you, Karen. Uh, this person writes, Afternoon there. I was brainstorming and came up with a phenomenal idea. Once a week, or maybe once a month, you can interview one of your fans or haters for 15 minutes. You set up the details. Like people send a postcard in, you pick out of a hat. I would think this could be great. Anyway, I watched a few videos of yours on YouTube. Your proposal to Rachel was absolutely beautiful. I can see that your wife loves you. Uh, the way she held your face, I spelled incorrectly. Bye. Marie from The Big Duck. I was on the board as treasury and volunteer at that. We had car shows, fairs, etc. It's good local fun. Okay. Thank you, Marie. Um, this person, Pete, writes, Hi, Frank. My wife heard the latter part of your show and alerted me to your reference to spinal stenosis, etc. With, uh, with your dad. I'm just listening to the podcast now and wish to make some comments of interest. I'm 71 and suffer from severe, several spinal maladies, including multiple sites of stenosis, degenerated vertebral discs throughout my spine, 
And he goes on and on with a few different things. Um, and then he basically said, interestingly, a very good rheumatologist told me that the inflammation in the SI joints and hip OA is the epicenter to all spinal maladies. It is agreed that the pounding your father did to his frame slash spine creates these conditions. Okay. Uh, yeah, and he has reduced his running. And then he doesn't run as much as he did. Bruce writes, Bruce in San Pedro. Hey, great show last night. Godfather of Harlem on Amazon if you have the time. Have a great weekend. Don't mind caps. Easy for me since eyes kind of shot, glaucoma, and more. Got my dad's eyes and hearts. Lost him at 48. Oh, I'm sorry, Bruce. Massive heart attack. Had two myself, but lucky in Manhattan at the time or wouldn't be writing. My mom did remarry like Matt. I was like 26, so he was always Al. Great guy. Uh, tropical regards, Bruce, a.k.a. Blind Bruce in San Pedro. James writes of the $1,000 Minute. Uh, Frank, I don't call in to play because I know my knowledge boundaries. Why would somebody call in and not know how many non-continental states there are? While it is funny, at the same time, I feel bad for Artie. Why embarrass yourself? He was a nice enough guy, I, I, but please. You know what, Jim? I think sometimes you just draw a blank. I've been in that position, and sometimes you just draw a blank. Sometimes you get nervous. Sometimes you're tired. Sometimes you're... You you just you're pressed for time. Sometimes you're stressed. Sometimes you draw a blank. Uh, John writes, "Come on, Frank. Ron Kuby picked donut out of garbage. Comment out of line. Kuby is every bit as good of an attorney as Jeffrey Lichtman." Well, first of all, John, what do you know? Have you been represented by either Jeffrey Lichtman or Ron Kuby? Have you seen either or both of them in court? Have either or both of them done legal work for you? How do you know how good of an attorney either one is? I feel very confident that I've seen both of them practice law and analyze the law for years in court that I feel confident that I can make judgments about their respective legal capabilities. Fine. Uh, and also frequently helps prisoners who were not guilty overturn their convictions. Just because Ron is on the other side politically than you does not mean you should disrespect him with comments like eating donuts he picks out of the garbage. John, uh, I said specifically that I never saw Ron or our colleague George eat anything out of the garbage. What I did say is that the only two people that we worked with in terms of on-air personalities I could see doing that were um, Ron and and George because they were not big on cleanliness. Like um, Ron, for instance, uh, he was very into um, uh, I, I don't know if it's chewing tobacco, but skull, skull. It's like a tobacco, and he would chew this tobacco all the time, or at least keep it underneath his lip. And it was the most disgusting thing in the world that he'd have. The, this this discarded spit out tobacco all over the all over the place and you know Ron is very physically fit now but when I knew him and he doesn't drink anymore but when I knew him he was a relatively heavy drinker and he was very into snacking so for instance if someone would walk around with with a container of popcorn and there were no plates Ron would take a couple of handfuls of popcorn and he would put it on his belly to make his belly a plate. Now, now Ron has a very, very tight abdomen, 
So he can't do that anymore. But the point is, if someone's going to eat popcorn off of their own belly, I don't think saying they would eat um, a an eclair from the top of the garbage is that much of a stretch. But I just want to reiterate, I never saw him do that. I just said of the old people that I worked with, I thought they might do that. Okay? Everybody needs to chill out. Chill out. Ron, uh, com- not Kubi, but another Ron, comments on the uh, $1,000 Minute. <clears throat> wow, Cabbage Patch, does this affect your money per minute ad fee? Also, what Saturday Night Live is better, Belushi and Gould in the end of S-Trek or the SS Enterprise restaurant? To me, the food is the best, deserves an Oscar nod. Keep up the good work, Ron. Uh, I am going with uh, Belushi. Belushi on Saturday Night Live as Captain Kirk. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Topic idea. Live and let lawn? Your audience has some very opinionated people, so this might prompt some calls. An old man on my block is one of the few who still cuts his own lawn. It's fairly quick, once a week. So he's not only quieter in lawn care, but he's less polluting than the jerks who hire illegals with chemicals and giant machines, too. So what's the problem? He waters the lawn daily around noon for nearly an hour. It's <laughs> it's wasteful and foolish. I'm inclined to let it go. But the waste of water in a region that has occasional droughts seem off, seems awful. Should I live and let live say something to the old man or just wait for him to get a water violation notice? My advice to you, and this person did not sign his name, you let this go. The guy, it sounds like, has very, you know, he his lawn is his pride and joy. It's not up to you to be the, the uh, lawn police, the lawn vigilantes, the water vigilantes. Let it go. Uh, if if it's a problem, I'm sure he'll hear about it. All right. Uh, let's see here. Helen writes, love listening to you. I think you're polite to callers and very fair-minded. Thank you. On various topics. After the town hall meeting last night, can you still support Donald Trump? He's still saying the election was rigged and Joe Biden is not the rightful president. 63 federal judges said he was wrong. Giuliani lost all 63 clauses. And you never mentioned this. I have mentioned this. You know, you know, I'm so over getting emails about stuff that I have mentioned. You know how I know I've mentioned it? Because I've gotten emails from people who are upset that I say that Biden won the election. And I get calls from people who say, I can't believe you don't think the election was rigged. I have mentioned this. Um, The Supreme Court said there was no proof. And how many recounts can you do in Arizona? I know you voted for Trump twice. But now, after he said January 6th was a beautiful day, are you going to give him a pass? I don't think I'm giving anybody a pass. Um, And this actually goes hand in hand with another email I got from Tom who asks... If there was a one-on-one race in 2024 between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, no third-party candidates, who would you vote for? Well, let me address both of these. I um, have a lot of problems with Donald Trump, and I have a lot of problems with the kind of president he was, the kind of appointments he made, the kind of things that he's saying now. I mean, the fact that in that Trump town, that uh, CNN town hall meeting, he actually went out and said that we should default on our debt— if this was anybody else, this would be front page news for a week. 
But he's the leading Republican candidate for president. It's like no one even cares about it. And that is an incredibly dangerous position. But it's not just that. It's the insistence that he won an election that he didn't win. It is the um, the getting involved in these stupid social media feuds. It's calling governors of states dopey nicknames like Ron DeSanctimonious. I just I just think you know, in terms of a president, he's not the kind of person that I would want my son, who I'd love to have him aspire to the presidency. He he doesn't behave in a way that I'd like uh, my son to see adults behaving. That being said, I have to be honest, if it's a one-on-one race between Biden and Trump, I am enthusiastically voting for Trump for all the same reasons that I was, well, at least many of the same reasons that I was attracted to Trump initially. I was, uh, you know, on the border, on military interventionism, on trade and on peace with Russia, Trump is exactly where I am. And even though I might not like some of the things that he does, and I might not approve of some of his behavior, I really do feel like the border is going to be more secure, that he'll be more vigilant in terms of crime in cities. I think Joe Biden kind of is a go-along-to-get-along guy. He is a status quo guy. He is happy to let this Washington swamp continue, the blob, as it were, the, the national security state continue to run things. And uh, I think Trump would give it a little bit more pushback. And I think he would actually be a much better president in a second term than he was in the first, because I think he would learn from some of his mistakes. And look, uh, for all my criticism of Trump, he did some great things. If you look at the Abraham Accords, we got peace in large sectors of the Middle East. If you look at uh, the, um, the Operation Warp Speed, and his spearheading of the development of these vaccines. Very admirable. If you look at what he did in terms of the um, criminal justice reform, bipartisan criminal justice reform with the First Step Act, I think that is very laudable. So uh, I would enthusiastically vote for Trump, but I'm perpetually disappointed by the way that he behaves. Dale in Rye writes, tried calling... I tried calling at about 4.30 and got some airline. I'd like to know what airline it was, Dale. I really couldn't tell you. I loved Babylon 5. It is my understanding that uh, Straczynski wrote the full five seasons before filming episode one, Dale and Rye. It's it's sort of true. That is sort of true. J. Michael Straczynski had the series story arc sketched out before they filmed. However, uh, they had to make uh, some changes when Jeffrey O'Hare was forced to leave the show due to mental illness, and it didn't look like they were going to get a fifth season. So they had to wrap everything up, namely that shadow war. They had to wrap everything up that was going to be in season five. They had to wrap it up sort of abruptly in season four. That's why season four ends the way it does, and then they unexpectedly got a fifth season on uh, TNT, And uh, they were able to do some interesting things in that fifth season. So it's sort of true. Denise writes, um, OMG, adios, Frank. You need a serious session with yourself. What are you and the MAGA babies doing for this poor country? Zero. 
you're, you're busy slimming and complaining and doing everything but working for the good of this country. Hunter Biden is not slash was not the president. Grow up the end, Denise. I don't think I said Hunter Biden was wow. the president. So and I, I sent her an email thanking her for saying that I looked like I had slimmed down a bit. So thank you. All right. Uh, Ellen writes, hi, Frank. I actually hesitated writing you this email since I really didn't want to add to your voluminous collection. But I just finished listening to the podcast from this morning. And I just had to tell you that I just loved it. Another winner. It and you are always equal parts entertaining and informative. There, I've said it, short and sweet. Uh, and I'm going to try to remember that parable about the sparrow and that we all do what we can. Oftentimes, tasks seem insurmountable, but this parable reminds us not to be discouraged. Thank you. That's nice. All right. Christine writes, uh, Hi, Frank. My husband and I were in Portland, Oregon for a few weeks on Family Matters. Thanks to you. I played your podcast, uh, The Other Side of Midnight, out there, and that kept us in the loop. It also made me feel less homesick. Your research on what's going on with the military-industrial complex is appreciated. In so many ways, you routinely encourage us to think and to question. I wish more of us would get less stuck in our bubbles and wonder about things. We're so busy defending our ideologies, we become fearful the answers may not be what we expect. We think that's safe. But it's anything but. All right. Let me squeeze in. Um, we'll do two more here. Two more. Because we do have a lot. Uh, but um, I want to make sure that we have some time to talk to Mr. W- Wigington. Hi, Frank. I was very upset to hear about ratings on Uber and Lyft. I never knew about that. My rating for Uber is 4.7 and Lyft is 4.8. Is that a good rating? Thanks, Bob. Well, Bob. Not according to the people that were Uber drivers. People like Matt Blaze and that other guy, they said, you're lucky to get picked up. I'm lucky to get picked up at a 477. I had a great Uber experience last Friday, uh, and I went into that Uber car ride as a 477. And I don't don't know what I could have done. The driver was laughing by the time I left her, and uh, I was still a 477, so it didn't increase. You know what O.B. Murray said to me? He said they should make it based on your last 50 Uber rides. Because it's not right that you did something 20 years ago and it's etched on your permanent record and you can never get it off. Not right. Last one. Hi, Frank. I also obsess over my Uber ratings. I found the segment funny. I'm a good Uber user. Polite. Ask before opening window. Don't slam doors. Never vomited, etc. Yet my rating is a 4.7. It is up to the drivers and their biases. I think I should start to give out four-star ratings also. Don't do it. I admire your determination to respond to every email. You're the only host who does this. At some point, you should phase out emails from listeners, and you can use this time to relax and come up with ideas for your show. Well, uh, regards, Bram. Well, I appreciate that, Bram, but I'll tell you what. I actually get um, a lot of great ideas from listeners. So I think that... um, I think that... uh, you know, I'm not going to do away with that anytime soon. All right. Um, we're going to talk chemtrails and geoengineering in just a bit. If we didn't get to your letter, and we had some fun ones, but they would have taken a little much, a little too much time to respond to. So maybe we'll get to them throughout the course of the week. If we didn't get to your letter or your text message or your Facebook message today, perhaps we will on the next edition of... The 
Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. of air, I think one of the things that just about everybody has in common is that we would like clean air, right? I think uh, irrespective of how people feel about uh, climate change or global warming or fossil fuels or renewable energy or uh, any of the hot button issues regarding the climate or the environment – I think everybody, nobody wants the air, the water to be filthy. And so the question often becomes is, how do you make sure that the air that we're breathing is clean? How do you make sure the water we're drinking is clean? How do you make sure that the environment is pristine? Or if not totally pristine, as pristine as we can get while not living in a horse and buggy age? Well... Dane Wigington has done some fascinating work and some thought-provoking work that I've been uh, digging into a big part of the weekend. He is the lead researcher for geoengineeringwatch.org. He's an investigator into climate engineering. He uh, did a documentary which got a lot of attention called The Dimming. Dane, I appreciate you joining me and uh, staying up late with us. Dane, can you hear me? All right. Uh, we're going to try and uh, get a hold of uh, we're going to try again and get a hold of uh, of Dane. Uh, but uh, Dane Wigington, as I mentioned, is uh, part of that documentary, The Dimming. He actually produced that documentary. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, talking about that. I actually didn't see the documentary yet, but I did spend a lot of time reading some of Dane's other work and uh, delving into some of the things on uh, geoengineering watch dot org and uh joe in queens has a uh, question joe we're going to talk to dane in i think just a second right, what, what's right. your question my, on the chemtrail issue yeah my question would be uh in a given location you know the topography is different you know some some of this stuff could be spilling at the beaches the mountains how long does it take him to see a cause and effect uh on the ground that's a good question. I will yeah. I will ask that as soon as we can reconnect with uh, with Dane. Thank you, Joe. All right. Uh, meantime, uh, Tony in Florida has been waiting a while. Hello, Tony. Well, good morning. Um, I was Johnny on the spot, called early, and if you don't mind, I wanted to make a comment about the names. Sure, of be, the be my guest. Boys. Sure. Um, I like the boys' names. 
But the girl, I don't know. I don't like names that start with a vowel. And most, for some reason, most of them start with a vowel. And I think a lot of them are kind of old-fashioned. And I think Olivia is kind of an ugly name. I don't understand why it's at the top of the list. Yeah, I mean, Olivia, thanks, Tony. I I like Olivia. I just think it's overused, right? I mean, I don't want uh, anything that's that crazy. All right, we've reconnected with Dane Wigington. Hello, Dane. Frank, how are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I appreciate it very much. Uh, Dane, before we get into the work that you're doing on geoengineeringwatch.org and uh, geoengineering in general, one of the the things that it's becoming increasingly apparent to me anyway that's a real problem in society, particularly in America, but maybe in the whole world, is sort of the, the climate industry and all the money that there is to be made in climate mitigation and repairing the climate and uh, I'm curious if you have any general thoughts on the climate industry, Dane. Well, certainly you have disaster capitalists with any scenario like this. And I would equate that to pirates filling their pockets with loot on a sinking ship. But it would be a mistake to believe that the damage to the planet isn't real and climate engineering being, although the single greatest factor it is by no means the only factor. So I, I would encourage people to get past the likes of Al Gore and his hypocrisy and every single environmental group and their hypocrisy and the notion that, quote, green energy is going to save us. And I can t- I can talk at any depth about that issue. I mean, my home was on the cover of the world's largest renewable energy magazine. I, I formerly worked for Bechtel Power, the largest engineering firm in the world. Um, and this is what got me into this issue, Frank, was that I was losing massive amounts of my solar power uptake from what aircraft were spraying. So think about that hypocrisy. You have the so-called climate science community and the green community actually pushing for geoengineering as if it's not being done already, and at the same time pushing for solar power and wind power and hydropower, all of which is being radically diminished by climate engineering. How stupid is that? Okay, so let's clarify those two terms for uh, people that are listening and, and may not be familiar with them. You use the terms geoengineering and climate engineering. What are each of those? One of the same. So you have the stated purpose of what's happening in our skies. One of the terms used in the climate science community is solar radiation management, and the expressed objective with solar radiation management is to put jet aircraft in the sky to spray light-scattering spark particles into the atmosphere to block some of the sun's incoming thermal energy. We have this on film footage, so we're not guessing. We, we've put a at over six figures expense and great difficulty. We put a National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration flying lab at altitude, top scientists, test, collected samples behind heavy aircraft, processed that at one of the world's most renowned testing institutions, found exactly what we knew we would find, climate engineering elements. Again, we have film footage of these aircraft at altitude, nozzles visible, turning on and off. This is not speculation. This is fully deployed geoengineering operations. But yet we have the whole of the so-called climate science community telling us, yeah, that's exactly what it would look like, and that's exactly the kind of elements we'd use, but that's really not what you're seeing or not what you're really finding in your test, which we are. So, again, we're living in a planetary asylum at this point. We have governments all around the globe that are actively or passively participating in these programs. The, The consequences are already catastrophic, and we have a population that simply doesn't want to know the truth. What um, So that leads me to my next question. You said we have governments all over the world that are actively or passively participating in these projects. 
Who's doing these geoengineering projects? Who's responsible specifically? They, the ones at the very top, always, it's where the money comes from. It's those who control the central bankers. They control militaries, thus they control countries, and all roads lead there. Anyone who thinks that any elected official, I don't care what political stripe they wear, is in control of anything, is simply not connected to reality. Those who control the money control everything else. So that's where all roads lead. And as far as the intergovernmental cooperation, we're not guessing in that arena either. We have documents at geoengineeringwatch.org, governmental documents, Senate documents. In fact, we have one Senate document, 800 pages long, that specifically outlines the global cooperation, even between otherwise adversarial nations like China, Russia, U.S., no matter what the – the surface conflict may be, they are absolutely all colluding and cooperating on climate engineering operations for various agendas and objectives, each to their own, but serving their own purposes. It cannot be otherwise. You cannot climate engineer over your own country without affecting the entire world. That's indisputable scientifically. And we have, again, great detail on this intergovernmental cooperation. So the climate engineering that's going on in the United States, for instance, that's being done with the goal of mitigating climate change or or exacerbating climate change? Okay, again, I want to clarify that. I, what I stated, that's the stated goal. Let's uh-huh. call this what it is. This is weather warfare, period. This is weather warfare. We can speculate on the agendas and objectives again, but this is weather warfare. What we're seeing right now, what we've seen in in previous years increasing systematically is a targeting of agricultural regions with various forms of climate cataclysm. And again, this is not to say that the climate system isn't broken from other sources. We've been very bad stewards of the planet. I don't think anybody can argue that. It's not about whether you like Al Gore or not. I certainly don't. But it's about reality. That being said, why wouldn't governments use this to control not just adversarial nations, but their own populations? So I would encourage your listeners to look back at a video of Lyndon Johnson 60, 61 years ago. They can see him, former U.S. president, at the beginning of every single weekly commercial-free news update put out by geoengineeringwatch.org. We're on 22 stations around the country. They can see it at the homepage of geoengineeringwatch.org, our website. First 20 seconds of that video is film footage of Lyndon Johnson stating in 1962, former U.S. president, that we had the power to control the world's cloud layer then, and, quote, he who controls the weather controls the world. And, indeed, this is the crown jewel weapon of the military-industrial complex because they can bring populations to their knees without those populations ever even knowing they're under assault, and they can blame it on nature, and that's exactly what they're doing, Frank. What are some of the negative and adverse effects that we've seen of climate engineering so far? Wow, that list is so incredibly long. Let me hit the high points, all of which are existential threats. First, it's destroying the ozone layer. If people think that it was just the hairspray cans, think again. Yeah, those are harmful on a very, very small scale. Climate engineering operations uh, exponentially more devastating. Climate engineering, single greatest source of ozone layer destruction. We're getting UVC on the surface right now. That's a DNA damaging spectrum of UV radiation. That's the final step before x-ray. I think we all know how harmful that is. It's killing crops, killing plankton, 
causing skin cancer, heating up parked cars at astronomical rates, which they talk about on all the climate engineering cover-up channels like the Weather Channel. You can feel this. If anybody can't feel how intense the sun is, they're not paying attention. So that's an existential threat near-term by itself. And when I say near-term, I'm not saying millennia out or centuries out. Uh, we're talking about on the current course, end of this decade. Ozone layers disintegrated, no more food, total starvation. Forest fires, single greatest factor climate engineering by disrupting the hydrological cycle. And the elements that are in the air, and this is a very near-term existential threat, we're talking about extremely toxic elements, aluminum, barium, strontium, manganese, polymer fibers, surfactants, and graphene. Graphene, if we take that by itself, that's like a vascular machete when it's inhaled interest of the olfactory nerve goes into the bloodstream, crosses the blood-brain barrier. All of these elements are in our precipitation, which means they're in our breathable air column, which means we're all breathing them in. They're all harmful by themselves, but when you combine them, the, the toxicity goes through the roof. It's called synergistic toxicity. So again, Frank, is it any wonder that degenerative neurological diseases like Alzheimer's, dementia, ALS, off the scale, respiratory everything, off the scale. And yes, we have industrialized pollution, not denying that. We're going through 100 million barrels of hydrocarbon fuel a day. That's, this is devastating. But the intentional disruption of the planet's life support systems to use weather as a weapon is even more harmful. We're talking with uh, Dane Wigington. He's the lead researcher for geoengineeringwatch.org. He also has a documentary called The Dimming, exploring some of the issues that we're talking about. So it sounds like uh, you're saying that the climate change could potentially be uh, a real problem, but the threats of climate engineering may even outweigh the threats of climate change. Excellent, excellent summary. Right on the money. This is going from the frying pan into the fire because the climate intervention operations have completely derailed the planet's life support systems. And to add more to this, Frank, can you hear me? Yeah, I'm listening. Okay, we had a click on the phone. I'm not sure what that is. Anyway, it, the, it's not only the saturation of the atmosphere with these electrically conductive, highly toxic particles. Those particles are then manipulated with extremely powerful frequency transmissions one facility is HARP in Alaska. You may have heard of that. Your listeners may have heard of that. That's a weapon of mass destruction. They, they, the official sources try to play this off like it's some benign research facility. couldn't be further from the truth. HARP's an ionosphere heater. It can heat the ionosphere to extraordinarily high temperatures because it causes an electrical chain reaction in that electrically charged layer of the atmosphere. That creates a bulge in space up and down. Frank, have you seen the extreme temperatures in the Pacific Northwest that are happening right now? Yes. Yes, I have, actually. That's, that's signature ionosphere heater. In fact, media is now acknowledging that that kind of heat dome, especially this time of year, is at minimum a once-in-1,000-year event, at minimum. And we hear that term all the time now, don't we, Frank, with once-in-1,000-year hail event, once-in-1,000-year flood event. Uh, with With all these scenarios, it's now weekly we see these things. So Again, when heart beams 3.5 million watts of power into the ionosphere, causes an electrical chain reaction, pushes the atmosphere up and down, that downward push is a high-pressure heat dome. Why would they do that? Because in the northern hemisphere, that rotates clockwise in the atmosphere, and that steers all the moisture around that zone, just like a pulley. And they can direct the upper-level wind currents, thus they can direct the moisture flows. So, again... 
we can speculate as to the agendas and objectives, and, and it's not hard to speculate when you have the top global influencers, if you will, those that are connected to those who print the money, stating clearly human populations need to be reduced. It's, it's not hard to speculate that when you control the food supply, you control populations. One of, the, one of the people that frequently gets mentioned in the context of discussions about climate engineering and some other concerns about the food supply has been Bill Gates. What, if anything, does your research suggest Bill Gates is doing with respect to climate engineering? Bill Gates is, is little more than a prop in the play. These operations were fully deployed before he was born. We know deployment at scale happened immediately after World War II. Frank, you've seen the World War II bombers that leave the big trails behind them. Mm -hmm. Many many people use that as a defense. Look, it's just connotation, right? We captured, it's on the dimming from military archives, we captured film footage from B-17s flying in formation, taken from one B-17 of the rest of the B-17s, and we captured up-close footage of a B-17 with a massive dispersion coming out of it, shutting that off instantly like it had been cut with a knife. The plane didn't fall out of the air, didn't kill all the engines. Clearly, that was a dispersion. And they would have had to have been beta testing in World War II in order to deploy right after World War II. And they started over the polar regions, which would make sense because the polar regions are the air conditioners of the planet. And again, about the whole concentration trail narrative, period, let's, let's blow that out of the water right now. We have, again, up-close film footage of these aircraft at altitude, nozzles visible, turning on and off. All military tankers, all commercial carrier aircraft have what's called a high-bypass turbofan jet engine. It is a jet-powered fan. 90% of the air that moves through that engine is not combusted. By design, it's nearly incapable of producing any condensation trail except under very rare extreme circumstances. The other day, uh, I had on a a fellow who uh, proudly claims to be a debunker on the issue of chemtrails. Uh, His name is Mick West. I want to play for you what he said about chemtrails and then get you to uh, respond. This is from uh, Thursday morning's program. What does the evidence suggest and what does your research suggest is the truth behind chemtrails? Uh, Well, the truth really is that there's no evidence that the government is spraying anything on us secretly. Now, the government actually sprays things on us deliberately now and then. They they, they do things for uh, mosquito abatement, for example. So they're actually kind of spraying a, a toxin out of the back of a plane. Uh, there's things like cloud seeding, which is a real thing. This is actually weather, uh, weather modification is a real thing that's been done quite openly since the 1950s. And uh, it... But, is very different to the chemtrail theory because chemtrails are all about these these trails that are left behind planes high in the sky. But weather modification is just something that is done at a low altitude using small planes, and it doesn't even leave a trail. It's something that you do. You just spray this silver iodide onto a, a cloud. So the actual evidence that people uh, give to support the theory, and there's a lot of it. There's, you know, it's one of these things like, you know, say, the moon landing hoax. There's endless, endless pages of of different types of uh, supposed evidence, none of it actually stands up. You know, I've spent many, many years looking at all these claims of evidence, and I've pretty much explained every single one of them. Uh, Dane, what would your response to Mick West be? My response to Mick West, a, a former video game programmer, that's who he is, did you hear in that entire diatribe, did you hear a single fact, one single fact, except him claiming that he's looked at the facts and there is no 
data to back anything up. What I'm asking people to do is not to believe this paid debunker, and he, he, he debunks anything and everything on his website that in any way conflicts with any governmental narrative, anything, every subject, he's there. Former computer gaming programmer, that's who he is. So I'm asking people not to believe that individual or to believe me. I'm asking them to believe what they can see with their own eyes. We have film footage of these aircraft, KC-10s, KC-135s, C-17 Globemasters, and commercial aircraft with commercial markings, nozzles visible, turning on and off. That is not condensation. Again, and if they watch the dimming documentary, we have U.S. Air Force generals, two of them, acknowledging these programs. We have the former Canadian Minister of Defense acknowledging these programs. We have the former U.S. Presidential Cabinet members, Canadian Premier of British Columbia, we have top scientists. So are we going to believe them and the film footage we can see with our own eyes and lab testing done at the world's most renowned testing laboratory? Or are we going to believe a former computer gaming programmer? <laughs> um, if people want to see the dimming documentary, what's the best way for them to do that? For free at geoengineeringwatch.org. We spent well into six figures on that film. Wow. Extraordinary effort. We made it available for free the moment it was done. There have been some people that have compared what's happening with climate engineering to some of the things that the pharmaceutical companies are are up to, which some folks claim has actually made some of the situations in healthcare actually worse than the ailments that they were seeking to heal or cure in the first place. Is that a comparison that you would uh, that you would subscribe to? I make that comparison all the time. How many pharmaceutical commercials do we see every single day on Matrix Media? Take this for that symptom, and by the way, here's the side effects. And when you get done hearing the list of 20 or 30 side effects, you wonder who in the world would take that concoction. And yet, people do, because they seem to want to not reason through the situation on their own. And that's exactly what we have here. We have the, the pharmaceutical industrial approach to planet Earth using weather as a weapon, and again, this is historical fact as far as weather weaponry. Um, we have Project Popeye in Vietnam that was so successful at controlling weather in Vietnam that by 1976, international treaty called the Inmod Treaties were restricting weather manipulation in wartime, but not over a country's own population. That's interesting, isn't it? And not that anybody pays attention to those treaties anyway. So, again, when people ask why would they want to modify the weather, my response is why wouldn't they? Of course they would. And, and Frank, have you heard many people say, well, why would they do this to themselves? Have you had that one thrown out yet? Sure. Right. Well, let's look at what they've done to themselves already. They detonated 2,400 nuclear bombs. Did they ask anybody's permission? No. They just did it, including Project Starfish, hydrogen bombs detonated in the magnetosphere, and they had no idea what that would do. In fact, we're still dealing with the consequences of them doing that, but they thought it could collapse the atmosphere if they did it anyway. So the 2,400 nuclear bombs have contaminated all life on Earth. We have Fukushima, triple nuclear meltdown, no technology to fix it, no end in sight, everybody pretending it's all gone away now. We have Chernobyl that's about to become a problem again because the sarcophagus is disintegrating, and we're building 60 more nuke plants right now. We're keeping old, dilapidated ones online, 440 of them total. And all of those are painting us into a very dark corner. So, again, we're not dealing with sanity. And, and let's not remember, forget the thousands of nuclear bombs, enough to destroy humanity about a thousand times over. 
Let's not forget that. So we're not dealing with sanity, and that's not a guess either. We have psychoanalysis of those in power. Here's the common thread. A near total lack of comprehension as to the consequences of their actions, even to themselves, straight out of the manual. Let me end with this. A fellow called in right before you were on the line asking, how long does it take to see a cause and effect? Let's say you see people spraying something in the air. How soon until that changes something? Are we talking a matter of minutes, days, weeks, months, years? Depends entirely on the application. Again, even if something you don't see over your head, whatever's happening upstream is affecting the conditions where you're at. So again, this is an extremely complex scenario. In regard to how long the particle descent time is, based on a polymer chemist that we have worked with, descent times can be as, as low as 12 hours, depending on the altitude the dispersion takes place at. We're talking about chemical ice nucleation for weather modification. Frank, have you seen all the temperature whiplash scenarios where regions are literally going from Denver, Colorado, going from 85 degree all-time record high to single digits in the snow in less than 24 hours. Have you seen those kind of swings? I, I, I actually haven't looked at that. No, I haven't seen that. They're extraordinary swings. You have matrix media, mainstream matrix media, calling this extreme temperature whiplash. It's not historically precedented. It's chemical ice nucleation for weather modification. So leaning back to your question, they are seeding cloud moisture, with endothermic reacting elements, again, we're testing the frozen precipitation, we're not guessing, and that causes what should have been a liquid precipitation event, rain, to become a frozen precipitation event. That's why you have massive hail falling. Have you seen all the hailstorms of late, really, Frank? That, that, I have, uh, that I have seen. Um, we're going to have to end it there, Dane, but I hope you'll come back. I have a number of other questions, and people are feverishly emailing me and tweeting me questions uh, for you. So uh, maybe we can continue this again in a week or two, uh, and uh, we could schedule something a bit longer. Hope they watch the dimming in the meantime. Thank okay. you, Greg. Check out uh, geoengineeringwatch.org, and you can see the dimming for free, for free, uh, geoengineeringwatch.org. All right, uh, questions, comments, 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I still think of Paul Harvey whenever I hear this song. At 11.45 every every weekday, I hear this song, and that was your cue to stand by for news. Um, 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, we're going to get to your calls after the top of the hour. But um, a couple of people writing in and asking about the cat that was recovering. That No, that was trapped, that my wife trapped. My wife spent a big portion of yesterday trying to get a veterinarian to um, fix this cat. And you would not believe the wait lists for these veterinarians. Some of these veterinarians are three-month wait lists. Finally, she was able to get a a veterinarian in Brooklyn to see this cat. And um, they did the surgery, and she is going to... Recover in our garage in the next day or two. So thank you. Till next hour, keep asking questions.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I don't know how this just occurred to me, but look, let's say we have, I don't know, 4,000 migrants coming in to this country every day, which is what I think the number was on Friday. Before that, a couple of weeks before that, it was as many as 10,000 a day. But I think for the last couple of days, it, it uh, has been about four, four and change. But whatever it is, 4,000 a day, 5,000 a day, 10,000 a day, whatever it is, a lot of people coming into the country. And I'm looking at uh, the different plans to deal with these migrants putting them in schools, putting them here, putting them there. Has anybody realized that this is the perfect means to save AM radio? Okay. What about as we give the migrants a cot in a public school gymnasium, as we give them a bedroom at the Roosevelt Hotel, as we give them a mobile phone and a college scholarship, whatever else they might be getting. What if every one of those migrants that comes into this country, as they're crossing, as they get their ticket for their asylum hearing, what if they get handed an AM radio? You are talking about thousands of new AM radio listeners every day. So, And I know people are thinking I'm joking about this. I am not joking. One... AM radio is a lifeline for people that are dealing with weather emergencies or other emergencies. Two, uh, since a lot of the, at least the political talk on uh, AM radio tends to be, uh, I'll describe it as somewhat anti-migrant. Not not all the hosts, but a couple of hosts. What if the migrants then start listening? One, it's a great way for them to learn English. And two, maybe they'll start calling in and participating, and you'll have real dialogue on this issue. I think that could be the very type of thing that helps AM radio thrive in the future, right? Get these migrants hooked on AM radio. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here first, folks. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here first, folks. Got it. All right. uh, In New York, there is a news anchor on Channel 7 by the name of Ken Rosado. And he apparently uh, I met him once or twice. Uh, I know I never really um, watched him on TV. I mean, I've seen him with the sound off, but uh, he did very well in the ratings and was seen all over the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. I think even Pennsylvania, at least parts of Pennsylvania. And Ken Rosado has been fired after 20 years on Channel 7, maybe more, for allegedly referring to his co-anchor, Shirlene Alicott, with a four-letter word. That's what sources told Page Six in the New York Post. The longtime local Eyewitness News This Morning anchor was immediately fired 
after he called her the C-word on a hot mic. Rosado was off the air when he allegedly uh, uttered the phrase, but insiders previously said his remark was picked up on an open mic and that he was immediately let go. Now, maybe there's more to this story, but it strikes me as a little weird. I can understand if he said this on the air and you let him go, but I really, I can't understand how you would uh, let someone go for uh, something that wasn't even said on the air. Really, this guy was just giving his opinion about a coworker. But it does bring up something that we've seen time and again in broadcasting. There's a wonderful film. It's called, many of you have probably seen it. It's called A Face in the Crowd. It's with Andy Griffith. And if you're thinking, oh, no, I only know Andy Griffith as that uh, that uh, sweet-talking sheriff from Mayberry, no. Very different type of character. And then some of you thinking, no, I only know Andy Griffith as that old lawyer from Matlock. No. Very different type of character. And he plays Lonesome Roads. I'm not going to tell you what happens in the film because it's just a wonderful film and it really is so prophetic of things that have happened in media since then and there's a moment in this film where Lonesome Rhodes, the Andy Griffith character is caught on a hot mic saying something compromising and it's a pretty important element in the film the rumor for years was always and this turned out to be debunked that Uncle Don who had a children's radio program for over 20 years in the New York area, Uncle Don had said one night on an open microphone uh, at the end of a show, there, that ought to hold the little bastards, and that did not happen. That is a popular misconception, whether it's an urban myth, whether it's the Mandela effect, that did not happen, but people believe that it happened. But we have seen so many hot mic moments over the years. I mean, do you remember the moment when um, Joe Biden was talking health care with President Obama? I think it was after Obamacare passed and Biden says to Joe uh, to Barack Obama. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States of America, Barack Obama. You hear Biden on the mic say to Obama in front of an open mic, you hear him say, this is a big effing deal. And this is, lest anyone think this is a Democrat thing, absolutely not. There uh, was when George W. Bush was running with Dick Cheney, he was talking about a reporter, I believe it was Adam Clymer from the New York Times, and um, Bush says to Cheney, oh, that's Adam Clymer from the New York Times. He's a major league a-hole. But he he didn't say a-hole. He he actually said it. Ernest Borgnine on Fox and Friends was in his 90s. And he quietly whispered while wearing a microphone to the journalist that was interviewing him what his secret to longevity was. On our couch today, we're going to talk to you in the after the show show. But real quickly, you're 91 years old. You look fantastic. You look like you're in your late 60s, early 70s. What's the secret? I don't dare tell you. (laughs) 
<laughs> no meat. You don't eat meat. That masturbate a lot. Okay, I think. Thank you, Ernest. So Ernest Borgnine whispered that he pledges himself a lot at 91, and that's his secret to longevity. And um, this has happened again and again. We've seen it happen and cost people their jobs. We've seen it happen and embarrass people. We've seen it. Uh, people say embarrassing things, and then they claim, oh, they didn't know when that they were on air. You remember when Michael Savage uh, had his MSNBC show a caller called him. I'm not sure how, uh, this that this explanation makes any sense to me. But a caller who I think was gay, or at least Michael Savage thought he was gay, said uh, Michael Savage says to the caller, "You should only get AIDS and die, you sodomite." And then Michael Savage's res- explanation for that was, "Oh, I didn't realize my microphone was on." I didn't realize I was on the air. Now, I'm not sure when Michael Savage thought that they took him off the air. In the middle of taking a phone call, he he says you should get AIDS and die. But that spelled his firing. That excuse didn't work for him. Uh, I'm curious if there are any other hot mic moments that you remember or that left an impression with you. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Clearly the one that's gotten the most attention lately, and it's almost overkill to repeat this, is the Donald Trump Access Hollywood tape when he's talking to uh, George W. Bush's cousin, Billy Bush, and uh, they're talking about women in a very crass manner. Uh, but it goes in the world of entertainment. It goes in the world of politics. It happens all the time. Justin Bieber was appearing on the Today Show, and in uh, this is about seven, eight years ago, and he was caught on a hot mic complaining about a tight camera angle during a performance at Rockefeller Plaza. And you know what's fun about these things? They're always fun to listen to, you, especially if it's someone like a news anchor or a politician that they're always you're always used to hearing them speak publicly and then to hear them when they don't realize they're speaking publicly there is something kind of really captivating about that i don't know what it is 800-848-9222 i will tell you this though one of the earliest lessons that i ever learned in broadcasting going back to my days working uh not working but volunteering doing a cable access television show from the time I was 16, is if there is a microphone in front of you, you need to assume that it's on. And you should not say anything in front of a microphone, even if you think it's off, that you wouldn't want broadcast all over the world. And it is amazing to me how many seasoned broadcasters, Ken Rosado being the latest example, how many seasoned politicians who should have learned this lesson so many years ago, how many of them don't seem to learn this lesson? So let it be a lesson to you that if you see a microphone in front of you, doesn't matter if uh, the on-air light isn't on, doesn't matter whatever the case may be, behave as if people are listening to your conversation. I'll tell you this, and this is an admission that I probably shouldn't make, But, you know, I was a young guy when I was first starting to produce radio shows and uh, call screen on radio shows. So 
What I would do, there was a device, and for all I know, these guys on the other side of the glass may do the same thing, but there was a, a thing where I could monitor, even when the on-air talent was off-air, I could monitor what those guys were saying in their microphones, even while they were off-air. And I have to tell you, I would do it all the time, because I was just so interested in what they were saying and what they were thinking, and what they didn't necessarily want me to hear. And not proud of that, but had they said something compromising, I would have absolutely been, um, I would have known about it. Or if they said something about me or other people at the station, I would have known about it. And I'll tell you, if these guys that work on my program now do that with me, they will absolutely never hear me say anything that I wouldn't say on the air. Uh, because whenever there's a microphone on, I am behaving as if uh, that I am, um, you know, I am being broadcast to the masses. All right, 800-848-9222. Robert Durst, this is one of those really uh, memorable moments that Robert Durst confessed to a murder on a hot mic. He and again, this goes to show you that you shouldn't be doing this. But he this was a recording that was shared with police. There was a 2015 documentary captured Durst talking to himself on a hot mic. This is what uh, Robert Durst said. There it is. You're caught. Right, of course. Can't imagine. He said that he killed them all. I mean, it's tough to make that out there, but he, he did say that. But this has happened to everybody. Christian Bale, Barack Obama, Jesse Jackson, Jacques Chirac, King Charles, George, uh, everybody. Newt Gingrich's mother. Newt Gingrich's mother called Hillary Clinton the B-word in what she thought was a private conversation with uh, Connie Chung. Nancy Kerrigan, Bill O'Reilly. And Bill O'Reilly and Bill O'Reilly, Ronald Reagan. This has happened time and again. I'm curious, what do you think the most memorable hot mic moments are? 800-848-9222. And can you believe people are still doing this? Why don't more people, not that I have the answers to everything. In fact, I'll be the first to admit, I don't have the answers to most things. But why don't more people employ the Frank Morano philosophy of if there's a microphone in the room, behave as if it's recording you? 800-848-9222. John is on Long Island. Hello, John. Hi. Good morning. Morning. Tex, Tex Antoine, the weatherman from the 70s, Eyewitness News, he... Uh, he was loaded half the time when he was on the air, and there was a story on a young woman being sexually assaulted, and Tex Antoine thought he was saying a joke and said, 
something such as Confucius. Yeah, I, I don't want to repeat the joke uh, for people that have been right. raped and stuff like that, but I think a lot of that people one. know the joke. The interesting thing with Tex Antoine, two things, and I'm familiar with the story and, and your your memory is accurate. That happened back in, uh, I guess, uh, 1976. But w- right. that was the same station that just fired uh, Ken Rosado as well. But... Um, the thing with that Tex Antoine thing, and I, I agree with you, I think he was probably drunk because those guys would go out for right. lunch and get tanked every day. But that was not even a hot mic. He should have known he was on TV. That wasn't Correct. He was broadcasting, he, and he said that joke. He was, he was off the show by the t- when he came back. Yes, that was uh, that was the end of him. Yeah, so but I just want. Yeah, that's a good I, one. I remember that. That yeah, so a long time I, ago. Yeah, that's a good one. Thanks, John. But I don't think that's necessarily the same as a hot mic situation where uh, Barack Obama's talking to Dmitry Medvedev, or you know, uh, Ronald Reagan says we start the bombing in five minutes, or something along those lines. You know, or Christian Bale or Tom Cruise berating their their crew or anything like that. I think it's a different ball game when you're just drunk on air and you make a, a joke that doesn't go over well. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick. Yes, yes, Frank. Two things. First of all, um, research that thing about – you said that, that uh, those little bastards, that guy who said uh, – Yeah, Uncle Don, them. yes. I, I actually heard that. I, I think it's the Mandela effect. I, I don't think you heard it. Well, I, I believe I do. So that's why I'm, and I'm not, you know, arguing with you. But no, no, you know, okay. Well, if you could find a recording of it or if not just him, but anyone else saying it, because okay. at, at other times, uh, sometimes the it, it, it's Arthur Godfrey that supposedly said it at sometimes it's, uh, you know, it's John B. Gambling that supposedly said it. Other oh, times it's Captain Kangaroo. It. No, no, it was the most common way is uh, cap th- that people describe it as Captain Kangaroo. But it, it just it's it's an urban myth. It's like the okay. Johnny Carson with Raquel Welch or Sophia Loren holding the cat, and he makes a remark that is a double entendre. That never happened either. There are all these instances, and we could do a whole separate show on the Mandela effect. But there's all these instances of people vividly remember something happening and it never happened. Now, I think part of the reason that that might be the case, and we'll do a whole, we've done the Mandela effect before and we'll do it again, is that we're actually living in a computer simulation and that these are glitches in the simulation. But um, but I would, if you find that, Rick, we will happily play that on air. Okay. Also, also just, a, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here, Rick. Yeah. Okay. Uh, can I give you a little constructive criticism? And this is not. This is not. You know. Uh, uh, this is really constructive. Absolutely not. <laughs> I can't do it. No, go ahead. I'm teasing. Go ahead. Uh, okay. When you ask a question, and we all get on the phone and start answering, it'd be better if you stop answering the questions because you sometimes hit on exactly what we're calling about, and then we're dead in the water. It, maybe you should. Give all your answers first and then say, if there's anything I haven't hit, give me a call. Because I was just going to call you about the Katie Couric thing and all that. And then I'm like, well, now I'm dead in the water. What was the Katie Couric thing? Well, the thing, uh, Katie Chung, I'm sorry. Oh, Connie Chung. Chung. Uh. Yeah, Connie Chung, yeah. And I was going to bring that up. And and this has been several times where I just Uh. had to hang up. It's like, well, I was going to talk to him. I'll tell you, you know, that's a good point, um, Rick. And that is a fair criticism. Thank you. I'll tell you who's to blame there. Kenneth. 
It really is, Kenneth, because here's what the here's what the story, here's what the story is. When I see that you're on the line, it just says that you have a comment about a hot mic. It doesn't say that you're going to mention Connie Chung. Because I'll tell you, you know who was the worst with that? Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh used to, you know, and uh, his producer, several of his producers I'm still friends friendly with. But his former associate producer, Brett Winterbull, is now a very successful talk show host in his own right. And I'm going to see him a couple weeks at Talkers. And he would say, because I don't know that Rush loved talking to callers. So he would say that Brett would put on what the caller's point was, and then Rush would take the caller's point. And, um, like, for instance, if somebody would say, um, Hillary Clinton's going to run for president in 2004, Rush would say, and I know a lot of you are going to bring up Hillary Clinton running for president in 2004. Let me tell you about that. And then he would address the caller's point, and you would see the callers all drop off. Now, I actually like the callers. So when I actually see someone bring up a caller's point, that uh, a point that uh, that, that they're going to mention, I actually avoid it. So had I known you were going to mention Connie Chung, original Rick, I would not have mentioned Connie Chung. So that's fair. That is a fair. I will try to do that in the future. It's not bad. It's not bad. Troy is in Babylon. Hello, Troy. Hi, do. Hi, do Frank. I'm well. I'm um, well. My, my, I had my questions from uh, this man. One time, he uh, greeted uh, John Cena, saying, "Hi, my my nigga." Yeah, I, you. I, def- I don't think you could say that on air, Troy. Uh, but I don't think that well, was Vince sure McMahon. I think matter. I think that was Hulk Hogan. No, it was this man. I uh, saw on YouTube. Yeah, um, send me that clip if you would, Troy, because the clip I've seen, unless there's multiple times that it's happened, I think that's uh, Hulk Hogan and uh, Booker T. But maybe it's happened multiple times. Maybe it's happened. Do you remember that? Vince McMahon using the N-word, Matt Place? No, I don't remember that. You don't remember that. Yeah, I don't I don't, I don't. remember that. Uh, you remember the one with Hulk Hogan? Yeah. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, that's that's that. See, uh, 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. I was listening to the radio. I've listened to the radio for years, and they were playing, like, bloopers and clips. And I heard the end of this story that that guy was saying before he had said at the end of the program when he thought it was over and the mic was 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 dead, that ought to hold the little bastards. I heard that. Yeah. But it was real. I—, I, I... Uh, thank you, Robert. If you could send me the audio, I will be happy. Happy, hap, I will be happy to play it. But this rumor started. This is how the rumor goes. If you're not familiar with it, that Uncle Don, whose real name was uh, Don Carney, ended his show uh, ended abruptly in 1947, and it, and there was always a seeking of explanation as to what happened. Why did his show just suddenly end? It was like Tucker Carlson or Ken Rosado. The the guy was at the top of his game. And there was a speculation in regards to how and why the show ended. Now, the reality is that he simply left the show. But the popular urban legend is that Carney was, was fired after an embarrassing incident at the conclusion of a broadcast in 1947. So according to the legend... After ending his program with his usual, good night, little friends, good night, sign off, 
Carney thought he was off the air and exclaimed, There! That ought to hold the little bastards! But his microphone was still live, and his comment was broadcast to the radio audience. The legend goes on to state that public outrage caused Carney's termination from radio. So the story subsided after a while, but shortly after Carney's death in the mid-50s, a man by the name of Kermit Schaefer resurrected the story once again. Schaefer was a radio and TV writer and producer during the 50s and the 60s, and he produced some classic comedy and jazz records, and he was best known for his collection of bloopers. Radio and TV mistakes, gaffes, malaprops, spoonerisms, tongue twisters. Schaefer's bloopers later became the inspiration for the television shows TV bloopers and Practical Jokers and America's Funniest Home Videos. And so a 1974 uh, motion picture, Pardon My Blooper, featured a lot of Schaefer's collected works. So after Carney died, Schaefer featured a supposed recording of the Little Bastards incident on his bloopers album. The legend has since been proven to be just that, a legend. The recording that you heard, Robert, was proven to be just a fabricated recreation of the legend. In reality, Carney left New York in 1947 for Miami. It did not happen. You heard basically an actor recreated, just like I could do with that Johnny Carson pussycat situation with Raquel Welch or Sophia Loren. If you um, delve into the reality of it, it just didn't happen. 800-848. So you did hear it, but you heard a recreation of it, a recreation of something that never happened. We're going to talk with Jason Cole in a moment, but uh, let me say a quick hello to John in New Jersey. Hello, John. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Um, Three seasons ago in baseball, Cincinnati Reds announcer Tom Brenneman was fired for Mm. an anti-gay slur August of 2020. He was a second-generation Brenneman. His father, I believe his name was Marty Brenneman, was a long-time Cincinnati Reds announcer. Yeah, I remember that, actually, and that's a good one. And that's one that I wouldn't have uh, have thought to have thought to mention. And, uh, you know, that's somebody who definitely, given not only his own career, but his father's, should absolutely have uh, have known better. Right. That's a good one. Tom Brenneman. All right. 800-848-9222. I was at Shea Stadium one time for a Met game, and they had an open mic, and the PA announcer didn't realize his mic was on and the opposing team had hit a home run or something, or maybe it was even the Mets had hit a home run, but it was well hit. And the guy, the PA announcer says, Oh blank. And says the S word, meaning he was just remarking about how far the ball had been hit. And uh, that is, that is certainly not something you could do. He didn't get in trouble though. I, because uh, they blamed it on a technician or something. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. Hey, but you don't have any open mic moments, Matt Blaze, do you? Yeah, there was the one with Sue Simmons and Chuck Scarborough. Well, I meant that you experienced. Oh, myself? No, yeah. no, no, no. I never did yeah. anything like that. Yeah. Well, uh, I, did you I, ever I, work I, with anybody that did that? No. I mean, I've always maintained the same rule that you yeah. do. Yeah, see, that's what you have to do. You know, when, when, we're, when we're doing the darker side, it's a little different. But 
in this studio, I would never say anything like that. Yeah, that's uh, that's the that, that's you don't want to get approach. used to that. Yeah, then but the Sue, the Sue Simmons one is a good one. She was yeah. a reporter on Channel Four in New York, and uh, and she said, "What the f are you doing?" But she, you know, she said that. All right, uh, Jason Cole, sports journalist and the author of a new book. Shut up, your kid is not that great. We'll get into it straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It's interesting. 18 months ago, I became a father for the first time, at least the first time that I'm aware of. And a couple of people wrote to me while my wife and I were expecting. They said, oh, I know you're going to be the best dad in the world. I know you're going to be a great dad. And my response to these people was always, well, I don't really want to be a great dad. I don't really want to be the best dad of all time. I just want to be a good dad because... The great dads are always, they're just a little much. They're always going on and on about their kids. They're always busy. They can't do anything because they're taking care of their kids and going to this and going to that. And they're annoying, quite frankly. And I have been annoyed by parents like this for my entire life. Now, I'm sure with uh, all the going on and on that I do about my home life, some people find my home life. Pretty annoying. I guess that goes with the territory. But I read this delightful little book, which is the appropriate level of snark, humor, wisdom, and brevity. It was actually a book so short that even with my nocturnal hours and chasing after an 18-month-old during the day, I was actually able to finish, and it did not take very long at all. It's an absolutely wonderful book. It's very funny. It's called Shut Up, Your Kid Is Not That Great. It's written by Jason Cole, who's a Ph.D. He's been a sports journalist, and he is the author of this opus, very short opus, Shut Up, Your Kid Is Not That Great. Jason, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Uh, Great to be here. Although I do have to say, I'm not a Ph.D., Although you could probably say I'm a PhD in sports because I did that for I've done that for 40 years. I don't know how that got in there, but I, okay. I've got I think like four pitches from from people pitching you as a guest, all of which say PhD. Are you sure you want to claim the title? I, uh, well, I mean I can claim it, but I I don't want somebody who knows better to come back at me. Um, so that would be that would be bad. But I, I mean I am a PhD in watching parents because between coaching Little League for eight years before I ever had kids and then raising two kids myself and then being around all sorts of sports parents covering the NFL for 30 years and sports in general for 40 years. Um, yeah, I got plenty. I got, I got plenty of knowledge in this area about uh, crappy parents who right. drive you insane. Let, let's talk <laughs> about this book. Uh, Shut up. Your kid is not that great. First of all, it's uh, terrific. It really is chock full of practical advice, but it's also uh, incredibly funny. 
What is the target audience for this book? Is the target audience the kind of parents that annoy everyone else, or is the target audience the kind of people that are annoyed by those parents? I think the target audience is anybody who's raising a kid. Because when I, when I talked to Tom Brady Sr., and he helped me with the foreword for this. and I, He helped me with the foreword. I wrote the book, put it together. I sent him a copy. He goes, every parent should read this book. And that guy raised you know, not only a great quarterback, but four older um, daughters who were all spectacular athletes and did it with just a panache of not overselling his own kids, right? And so to me, it's it's anybody who's a parent, whether you're annoying or whether you see somebody who is annoying, you just want to have an understanding of, and, and the point of this to me was, don't live your your life through your kids, support your kids have them be passionate about something find something that they really enjoy but it's their life not yours first of all let them have fun with it and stop trying to tout them and don't make the exercise of whether you're playing sports or whether you're singing in the choir or whether you want to be on stage on broadway whatever it happens to be it's not you doing that and don't don't get them in activities only so that that's the purpose. Like I run into so many parents who are like, Oh, we're going to get our kid on this travel ball team because he's so great. And this and this and this, and he's going to hitting, you know, 400 on his peewee, you know, baseball team, you know, his, his T-ball team or whatever it happens to be. And we, we expect him, he's going to get a college scholarship. How about he just likes to play <laughs> right? or he, she likes to play like that. That's enough. Can we just start with that? And if they really like to do it, you know what? They're going to keep doing it for the rest of their lives. And maybe, just maybe, if they're talented enough along with it, they'll play. I, I, you know, I, I remember writing about Jack Elway when I was doing the biography of John Elway. I did a lot of research about his dad, Jack. And Jack's favorite quote, or my, the favorite quote I ever heard from Jack Elway was when his son was coming out for the draft in 1983, he said, I just want him to enjoy the playing ball. Because it's not about dollars and cents. It's about the joy that uh, and the passion of playing. The, the, what, was there a straw that broke the camel's back for you where you said, I really <laughs> need to write this book? I've seen one too many over-anxious uh, over little league parents uh, trying to declare their preschooler eligible for the Major League Baseball draft. What was the, uh, the, what was the moment that you realized this was a book that needed to be written? Why would you write this? Well, I was talking with my agent, a guy named Jared Westfeld, who uh, runs Objective Entertainment there in the New York area. And he was telling me, because he, you know, his kids are probably 20 years younger than mine at this point. And he was talking about um, coaching, you know, uh, community, the community center basketball team, right? And his kids are not particularly good. And, but, but, they are enjoying it, having a good time at it, right? And he was talking about the overzealous parents who were complaining about the time slots for the playoff games, right? And we were just like, we were going back and forth with stories, and I was remembering things from when I coached Little League and all these other, you know, and when I listened to parents and all of the stories I'd ever heard about parents who interfered. And between the two of us, we just, I don't know who said it first, um, but it was like, you know, I, I just wish parents would shut the hell up, right? Mm. So shut up. Your kid's not that great. You know, like, let's not worry about all these things when they're playing in an eight-year-old 
or ten, you know ten year old basketball league, right? Like, don't do that. Don't don't get all caught up. Get caught up in whether they're again. Are they having a good time? Did you are you having a good pizza party to end the end the season? Right? Like, that's actually important. I remember coaching little league, and we would you know a couple of times a year. Let's go all, everybody go out for pizza, and have the kids like end up throwing pizza at each other or whatever it happened to be. Right? Because that was their way of bonding, and it's their great memories. Um, and I remember running into kids that I coached. And they talked about the little things about playing games that they enjoyed so much. And those are the things you, you, that turn, turn kids on to playing and make them want to keep playing and make them, and make them want to do this. Not, you know, did you get them the right instructor, mm. you know, and did you get them on the right travel ball team? Like they just, I'm sorry, they're not into that, into it that way. The, um, you have a bunch of great little, axioms in this book uh shut up uh, your kids not going to be the next reality star uh shut up your kids mm-hmm. not going to be the next supermodel shut up your kids not the next kanye west y- you have one uh little i don't know if you could call it a chapter or it's a page really where you say shut up you're not king richard isn't there always this tendency behind either great athletes, great scholars, even some great musicians, that you do have to have a little bit of that Serena and Venus Williams father in you or uh, Tiger Woods father or Amy Chua, the Tiger mom, where you are uh, pushing your kids to be, you know, the best they possibly can be and to work as hard as they possibly can? Isn't that a common theme with whether it's athletes or people in other uh, difficult fields that have achieved some level of greatness, the so-called momagers or dadagers? No, I think it's mostly the opposite. Now, I think that King Richard, you know, Richard Williams, in his own way, um, made his kids passionate about playing tennis. Uh, and But I don't think that he necessarily pushed them individually in a harmful way to be great. I guess that's my, my point. He pushed back on society and made sure that they had opportunities. So it's a little bit different. Um, you know, look, Earl Woods, as great as Tiger is, and you can argue that Tiger um, is the greatest golfer of all time, all right? And certainly as a fellow Stanford grad, I, you know, I love Tiger Woods. But there's a point where Tiger's own self-destructive behavior is kind of, a, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. Okay, I don't have a PhD in a psychologist, but you tend to wonder if his own mania turned him, you know, hurt him in the long run, right? And caused him to do some very strange things like, you know, the sort of, um, what was he doing, special ops training at one point in his Mm -hmm, life? mm -hmm. And, you know, destroyed his back, right? Like, so, yes, did Earl push him to be a great golfer? Sure. And did he make it? But was Tiger satisfied and happy with what he was that he pushed himself in the in the right way? I don't know. I, I think it's a fascinating discussion about how Earl did that. But again, most of the parents that I've run into, you know, whether it's Andrew Luck's dad, um, who Oliver Luck, who was a quarterback himself, right? Who he never pushed his kid to be great. If he wanted to do football, great. I remember talking to Oliver about it one time. He said, look, I never showed up for football practice. He goes, I went and watched the games, and I shut my mouth. And, I, you know, I didn't tell the coaches how to handle them. If they asked me a question, sure, I was going to answer it. 
but I wasn't going to tell him how to manage my kid. I wasn't going to tell him how to run an offense. That was between him and them. I was going to stay out of it. And I've run into a lot of uh, parents who are like Dan Henson, okay, who had was the father of Drew Henson, a guy who was supposed to be the next John Elway, even wore seven in college. And he was drafted in two different sports, including by the New York Yankees, right? George Steinbrenner famously drafted Drew Henson in the third round, paid him a lot of money to quit, to quit football at Michigan, right? And when Drew Henson, because basically life had been set up for Drew Henson all along the way by his dad, who you know basically arranged everything and even made sure that he didn't have stiff competition along the way in college or tried to, tried to eliminate that stiff competition as much as possible, when the kid ended up getting booed during minor league baseball games in Columbus, Ohio, which is where the Yankees played their AAA games at the time, he couldn't handle it. He wasn't ready for when it got really tough because the parent had gotten in the way and made it too easy along the way for him. He had paved the road too smoothly for him. And sometimes you just have to let your kids go and do it themselves, and they got to fall on their face, and you help pick them up. But you got to let them fall on their face somewhere along the way and know that the, whether they want to get up and handle it. The uh, If people just tune in, we're talking with Jason Cole. His new book is uh, Shut Up, Your Kid Is Not That Great. It's available on Amazon and in most places where books are sold. The forward is uh, written or the introduction is written by Tom Brady Sr. It's a very funny book, but it also raises some very important points about uh, about parenting these days. Do you think this tendency towards over-aggressive parents, between parents who push their kids too far, parents who do think that because uh, their child is getting straight A's that they're the next Stephen Hawking. Is this a new modern phenomenon, or have these parents always been out there? Well, they've always been out there. I mean, look, they were out there when I was a kid. They were out there before I was a kid, right? Like, it's just, it's, it's human, it's hubris. Right, that gets in the way sometimes, and also, again, you're you're as a parent, you're looking at this, and, and you know, personally, I ran into it sometimes with myself, and like, am I the one who's up there on stage trying to explain what my kid is trying to explain, or am I the one who's out there? You know, both my kids were in rowing. Am I the one out there in the boat? Well, no, I had to caution myself. No, I'm not. I'm not that person. So I have to let my kids go do it themselves. And if they come to me and ask me for advice, that's again, that's fine. Ask me for advice. If you know something doesn't work, ask me how 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 to help. You know how to help. Okay. So look, those parents have always been there. I think it has become accentuated, however, especially in sports, which is where my you know my expertise in all of this is, because of the money involved. And because of, you know, the, the college scholarships that are involved, all, everything that's a payoff that, that you can get out of this. And so, the, you know, again, I've, I've seen parents who are driving their kids all over the planet for travel ball games. And they're saying, oh, you know, we, we really expect this is going to pay off in a college scholarship. Well, again, is, are the kids doing it for money? Are you, is that why you're? You're pushing them. Are they? Are you doing it for money, for a college education, for the, for for, for some exchange program, or are you doing it because they have, they have to love it? Because there's too much pain and there's too much embarrassment that goes along the way in any of these activities. Whether again, whether it's sports or whether it's entertainment. If you're up on stage and you flop, 
that's too painful an experience to go through to make it about some financial gain. You have to make it about you're up there and you're willing to, you know, endure whatever pain and that goes with it, the flopping that goes with it. So you can learn from that. So you can actually entertain somebody the next time, whether that's to make them cry because you um, sing so well, so dramatically, or to make them laugh because you're great at comedy or to make them cheer because you hit a baseball really far. You have to endure all sorts of, you know, both physical and psychological agony that and it, and and just doing it for dollars just doesn't work there is um always these stories especially lately especially in light of the pandemic and the difficult things that a lot of kids went through but there's always these stories about children having a tough time with anxiety with depression with drug use with self-confidence by um, by starting a book and making your theme of the book, shut up, your kid is not that great. Is there a part of you that is risking getting parents not to be as supportive or encouraging of their children as they should be? I'm sure this is a criticism you've heard before. Oh, sure. I mean, it's something I thought about. Like, this is a harsh title, right? And if you don't know my sense of humor and if you don't know how snarky I can be, it's not for you, all right? I, I understand that. But I say it, and I wrote it this way, having watched this behavior for years and years and years and years and experiencing it up close and dealing with it myself, right? And this is not me telling you don't go out and cheer for your kids. But don't set them up, you know, for un, you know some kind of unrealistic mm. expectation. And don't set yourself up for some kind of unrealistic expectation where you're the one who's disappointed because they didn't happen to perform. I mean, I, I you know, there's, there's one guy I ran into and is, you know, yeah, sadly he ended up, he was a really good athlete, really good football player in high school. He's like 5'10", 5'11", right, at the time. And, you know, he, he ended up playing really well. He ended up, you know, being an alcoholic later in life. And one of the things was his dad, every time they started talking, his dad talked about his disappointment. It's like, yeah, if you'd just been four inches taller, you'd have been <laughs> in the NFL. If you'd just been this, if you'd just been that. Well, you're pretty damn good on your own. Like, you're pretty damn smart for whatever. And because the football thing didn't work out, so what? Love your kids, support them, push them, you know, push them to do things, okay? Get them out there and make them be active. I mean, I pushed my kids to be Boy Scouts, okay? And they became Eagle Scouts. And, you know, they would probably tell you I was a bit of a pain about about getting them do, to do that. But they didn't become Eagle Scouts because I wanted to, to become an Eagle Scout. They became Eagle Scouts because I thought it was useful for them, okay? Because I thought it was a good act because they stuck with it and because they liked it enough that they wanted to keep going because of all the other activities. And they did other sports or they did – physics in high school because they liked it and that that's what you want to do inspire your kids to find something that they're truly passionate about and support them to do that 
Obviously, the every every page of this is just uh, dripped in in humor. For instance, uh, shut up, your kid's not going to be the next Kid Rock. The closest your kid will come to being a, like Chris Rock is getting slapped in the face for making a joke about the prom queen's bald head. It's very funny. Do, do you risk using too much humor, so much so that it undercuts the sort of serious points that you're trying to make about parenting with this book? Well, since I'm not a PhD, okay, and this is not written <laughs> as a, from an academic standpoint, despite whatever that the, the despite whatever the the written introduction was, I'm I am not a PhD. Okay. And because I'm not doing an academic work, um, I'm not really worried about that. Okay, um, and if it does, then it does, and if it doesn't, then you got the joke. And you know, hopefully, at the end of this whole thing, people come away, you know, a little wiser and a little more experienced and a little bit more understanding of, hey, you know, maybe I just need to let my kid be a kid and really be supportive and not be. You know, yelling and screaming all the time at the umpires or the coaches or this and that, not doing things that embarrass them and not trying to live vicariously through them. Mm. And if you if you come away with that simple notion, then I think the book has had some use. And if you just read it and you, you hate it, well, you're not the first person to hate what I write. You know, I've, I've lived through that over 40 years as a, as a journalist. We will have to end it there. Jason Cole, not a Ph.D., but the author of Shut Up, Your Kid is Not That Great. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Uh, congratulations on the book. Good luck. Thank you very much. It was thoughtful. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Sing a song for the broken hearted. Jovi here on the other side of midnight. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, just join our Facebook group. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano, 800-848-9222. Yeah, so both Alex Barnard and uh, a Twitter user found a Vince McMahon clip of him using the N-word. That is not a hot mic moment. Uh, I've watched this clip. That's him in character. He that's intended. That's scripted, just like a movie would be or a TV show. A hot mic moment with that is when you don't realize that your words are being caught on camera. So I appreciate the people sending that to me, but uh, I think it's a, I think it's a little different. All right, what happened twenty five years ago this month? Think about it. I'll give you the answer in a moment, and we will do a retrospective. 
to something that occurred 25 years ago this month and talk about what might be happening in the near future. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, your influence counts. Do be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. Well, 25 years ago this week, 25 years ago this month, we saw one of the greatest comedic television shows of all time, all time, come to an end. That's right. The show, supposedly about nothing, ended May 14th, 1998. I remember it as if it was yesterday. And I uh, went to my friend Brian Silverstein's house, watched the last episode. I loved it. Loved the last episode. And for some reason, I don't know why I brought a book with me, because when was I going to find the time to read the book? But I had Gordon Chang's book with me. I was holding a book that Gordon Chang had written about China. And um, I don't know, maybe it was my way of being pretentious that uh, showing that, hey, look what I'm reading. I'm reading all about foreign policy and geopolitics. And you guys are just worried about Seinfeld. Meanwhile, I didn't open the book once. <laughs> I just, I, 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 for, I don't know why. You, certain things stick in your head over time. And that was one. So anyway, I loved the Seinfeld finale. And I remember when I would talk to all of my friends and family members the next day, almost none of them liked it. And the other thing I remember is during each commercial, I would call my friend Eric Balson and basically do the scene that we had just seen on that Seinfeld finale. I wonder if he remembers that. Eric and I are still a little bit in touch. So, um... It was, I felt, a perfect end of the show. I thought it was a great finale, and it was a great way to incorporate a lot of the themes. You know, the last conversation they have is the same one as the, as the conversation from the first episode. You see so many characters come back from the show. They tell a new story, but in some ways everyone is exactly back where they were. It's um, meaningful, but it's also not too meaningful because Seinfeld never did that. They had a, a no-hugging rule, no-sentiment rule. It was all, all about being as shallow and as vapid as as they could. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed over the last 25 years, 
First of all, you have to understand, when you're ending a TV show that's as popular as Seinfeld was, there's no way to end it that people are going to be happy with. I remember the same situation with the Cheers finale, which was about 30 years ago. When Cheers ended, and certainly when Seinfeld ended, expectations were so high that there was nothing that could have been done to satiate people's desire for more Seinfeld. You know, Seinfeld was offered one so over $100 million by Jack Welch to come back and do one more season. And I, I don't even know what that would have meant for the other cast members. They probably wouldn't have gotten $100 million, but they probably would have had a nice payday. And um, the head of of Seinfeld, of uh, NBC at the time, Warren Littlefield, says he saw Jack Welch write down that number and pass it to Jerry Seinfeld. And he said he's never seen that before. Someone be offered $100 million for one season of a TV show and refused to negotiate. But Jerry Seinfeld said he was done. And you know what? He has been done. All of the other people on that show, Michael Richards, Jason Alexander, um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, they have tried to do shows, sitcoms, after that. But none, I mean, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus did win some Emmys and did very well with Veep. None of them had Seinfeld-level success. And they all had that kind of Seinfeld reunion on Curb Your Enthusiasm which they said when that aired that that was a good way to kind of heal some of the wounds from the finale. But what I was going to say a moment ago is I feel like while a lot of people were unhappy with the Seinfeld finale when it aired 25 years ago this week, most people that I talked to would say, even people that said they were dissatisfied with it at the time, when they watch it these days in reruns or just on DVD or however else they watch it, they really um, enjoy it, and it's funny. And the thing that's interesting about – I'm curious what you thought of the finale and if you either are like me and that you've always liked it for the last 25 years or you're more of the impression of some of the people that I'm describing, which is you didn't like it at the time, but as time has gone on, as you've watched it in reruns and other times – you have grown to appreciate it more. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. I thought it was really, really well done. Good morning. Uh Good morning, Jackie. Good morning. Is everybody ready? Didn't I tell you I wanted you to wear the cardigan? (laughs) Makes me look older. Look older? You think this is a game? Is that what you think this is? I'm trying to give you a moral compass. You have no moral compass. You're going to walk into that courtroom, and the jury's going to see a mean, nasty, evil George Costanza. I want him to see Perry Como. No one's going to convict Perry Como. Perry Como helps out a fat tub who's getting robbed. You think it's funny? No. you damn right it isn't. That, of course, was their lawyer in that case, Jackie Childs. You know what's interesting about Seinfeld is... There, it's it's so difficult for me to picture this because I watched Seinfeld in real time when it was on. But there's a whole generation of, of fans of Seinfeld that have come to enjoy it over the course of the last 25 years. They didn't see it once when it was on. And they've become fans in syndication or in reruns. And a lot of them don't remember history from 30 years ago. So there, I, my sister-in-law is one of these people. My youngest sister-in-law, I have eight siblings-in-law and all. 
And my youngest sister-in-law didn't realize that the character of Jackie Childs was based on Johnny Cochran because she's only 26. She didn't she wasn't alive for any of the OJ trial. She doesn't remember any of the OJ trial. She didn't know who Johnny Cochran was. So then lo and behold when she would see documentaries or news reports about Johnny Cochran, her first uh, impression was, "Oh, that's uh that's guys just like Jackie Childs." And in some ways it makes you have an even greater appreciation for the comedy that included Jackie Childs. I enjoyed it. I thought it was really well done. And there was an interesting article in the New York Times by over the weekend by Maya Salam saying, what's the deal with adulthood? 25 years later, Seinfeld feels revelatory. And this is exactly the kind of article. I don't know Jerry Seinfeld and I don't know Larry David, but this is exactly the kind of article that they would hate because Seinfeld was not supposed to teach any lessons. Seinfeld was supposed to be silly and fun and shallow and vapid. It was supposed to be a show about nothing. And yet, Maya Salam says that in watching Seinfeld and watching it, going back and watching it now, that um, the show basically, it puts things in broader perspective. For instance, she writes... It has been consistently framed as a comedy about four terrible people with good reason. But they also presented an irreverent version of adulthood that I had never seen on TV or in life. A playful yet sophisticated world where grown-ups joked and laughed together and didn't take themselves too seriously, even when everyone around them was being very serious indeed. Most important, they openly mocked the notion that professional success, marriage, and parenthood were the cornerstones of existence. For me, not for me, Frank Morano, but for the reporter, Maya Salam, for me, a serious child surrounded by serious adults, a child who was ostracized by those unable to categorize me, and who knew early that established paths to fulfillment would not apply. This revealed loads of possibilities. Seinfeld outright questioned these constructs in one episode. When Jerry and George are compelled to wonder whether they need to grow up, Jerry gets an explosive rebuke from Kramer. What are you thinking about, Jerry? Marriage, family, they're prisons. Mad-made prisons. You're doing time. And in another, George bemoans an office interaction. Uh, Jerry's self-satisfied response to George, I never had a job. And um, basically... What the writer of this article says is the refusenik sensibility is threaded through the entire series. And any attempt by the characters to sublimate themselves to social norms fizzled quickly and often in grand fashion, particularly professionally. And it's true. And uh, she finds a lot of meaning about how Seinfeld kind of taught her that there was more to adulthood than just career. And more to adulthood than marriage, and more than adult, more to adulthood than um, the things that adults were supposed to do. And I think it's a good point that she raises. But again, as I said, it's exactly the kind of column, or the, exactly the kind of opinion piece that uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David would absolutely hate. So uh, I enjoyed the finale, and you know who came back and wrote that finale after having been gone from the show for two years? Larry David. 
Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld wrote most of the episodes of the show. They founded the show together, and uh, Larry David left the show to go make some movies and take a little bit of a break from the rigors of network television, but he came back and wrote the finale, and I think he did a terrific job. See, now, to me, that button is in the worst possible spot. Really? Oh, yeah. The second button is the key button. It literally makes or breaks the shirt. Look at it. It's too high. It's in no man's land. Haven't we had this conversation before? You think? I think we have. Yeah, maybe we have. Now, the, the reason that was the last conversation they ended the show with was because that was a conversation that George and Jerry had in the very first episode. So if you remember the first episode, it really was a great way to come full circle and a great way for George through saying, haven't we had this conversation before, to pay an homage to the fact that uh, that was the conversation they had. So happy uh, 25th anniversary to Seinfeld. Uh, It's one of those shows, much like I Love Lucy or uh, MASH to some extent, that did very well on network television, but in some ways I think it did even better in syndication and in reruns. And you've had now more than a generation of fans falling in love with the show, never having seen a new episode, meaning a first-run episode. So uh, I think it's uh, an important as an important a time to look back at the finale as anything. 800-848-9222 if you have thoughts, questions, comments. It's interesting I mentioned Larry David coming back. So I think Seinfeld lasted eight seasons. This season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is uh, going to be the 12th, uh, nine seasons Seinfeld was. This season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which stars Larry David as a fictionalized version of himself, they say that this is actually going to be the last season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I'm glad to see this because, well, it's bittersweet, I should say, because on the one hand, I think Curb Your Enthusiasm is maybe the funniest show ever made. I, I think it is in some ways even funnier than Seinfeld. And there's two things about it that I think really help that show humor-wise as compared to Seinfeld. One, they don't have commercials. So you don't have to build to a crescendo or a cliffhanger right before the commercial break. The other, and this is the last thing you'd expect me to say because I don't use profanity, but the fact that they curse on that show helps so much the way that those people on that show, uh, Robert Kennedy's wife, uh, Cheryl Hines, Larry David, Susie Esman, Jeff Garland, the way that those guys use profanity is like watching Bob Ross paint. It's, war- it's art. It's art the way they use profanity. And, of course, uh, J.B. Smoove, is, uh, he was a welcome addition to that show. So uh, for those of you that didn't care for the Seinfeld finale, it looks like you'll probably get, get a chance to see Larry David make it up to you with a Curb Your Enthusiasm finale this year because it will be the last time, in all likelihood, that you will see these characters. All done? Uh, no, I'm good. Thanks. Awesome. I can't wait to see this movie. Oh, it's going to be great. 
I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I'm using the bathroom before the movie. Okay. I'll see you inside. Yep. I'll hold your popcorn. Unnecessary. No, it's no problem. You want to go to the bathroom? I'll hold your popcorn for you. No, no, I'll, I'll just, I'll just take him to the bathroom. It's fine. You're gonna take your popcorn into the bathroom? That's no. disgusting. Don't leave your popcorn in the bathroom with people in the skivats and no, all No, 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 no. I hold on to it. I, I actually, I, I munch and pee. No, you can't. That's not, not good. Munch and pee. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I like to munch and pee. Really? It's fine. Why don't you want me to hold the popcorn? Because obviously there's a problem with there's holding no the popcorn. No, no, there's I, a little I, bit of a problem. It's, look, it's my popcorn. It's not necessary. You don't want me to hold the popcorn. Who right? said that? You think I'm going to eat? Your popcorn? I eat my popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> Are you worried she's going to eat your popcorn? Are you crazy? I'm what? really uncomfortable with this. I'm really. This is my wife. Yes, Larry. This is my wife. And you're accusing her. I don't think I could be in business with you. What? This is bad. This is this is really bad. You Are can you take nuts? a check. I'm a man of integrity. Yeah, I, I know. Obviously, I mean that's why we. Obviously. What's that? What the f does that mean? No, only that. You know, he's a great inventor and. Oh, Oh, here, take the popcorn. Yeah, you can hold it. Hold it. Take, take the popcorn. Yeah, take it. Take, I don't want it. Take, take the... That was a very funny episode. And that's the other thing about Curb Your Enthusiasm. If you look at all the movements that Seinfeld gave birth to, the yada, yada, yada movement, the uh, not that there's anything wrong with that movement, the no kiss hello movement, the uh, telephone face off uh, movement, the double dipping of chips movement. These were all social norms that really began or were furthered significantly with Seinfeld. And Curb Your Enthusiasm slays those sacred cows on a much more politically incorrect manner. Uh, for instance, that scene uh, that the girlfriend of this guy that Larry wants to do business with is played brilliantly by Aida Turturro, who a lot of you may remember as Janice from the TV series The Sopranos. So, you know, she's not necessarily considered a real beauty. She's sort of heavy set. And the lesson that you come away with in that episode is that if a really handsome and or really smart and or really wealthy guy has an ugly wife, not a young, hot wife, then he's got integrity. If he's got a very beautiful wife, that means he's shallow. You can't do business with anybody like that. And so that's what you hear when he says, uh, I'm a man of integrity, and Larry responds, obviously, Aida Turturro is not sure why she should be offended, but she knows, rightly so, that she should be offended. They did a whole episode about how, um, and they did a whole episode about how black people, black men specifically, when they wear glasses, look smarter and are treated with a level of respect from strangers and the public that is unparalleled by anyone else. And you know what? After that episode aired, my friend Keith, who's black, he tried that. He tried that with doing spending the whole rest of the week in glasses. And he said that he noticed a difference in the way that people were, were treating him. Now, maybe it's just people with glasses in general. Maybe it's not specifically black people. But the way they handled it was funny. The way they invented a uh, disease, they invented Groat's disease. And by the way, the namesake of Jerry of uh, Groat's disease was the baseball player Jerry Groat, 
who actually um, just uh, he just died, I think. So, uh, oh, maybe he didn't die. I, I saw him in the news for some reason. If Jerry Grote is still alive, I apologize. And I, it looks like Jerry Grote is still alive. I apologize. Jerry Grote, still alive. Didn't He overcame the Grote's disease. I remember tweeting about him recently. So he's still alive. That's great. Survived the Grote's disease, probably because of that hat that Leon had. All right, 800-848-9222. It is the end of Curb Your Enthusiasm after this season, and we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of the finale of Seinfeld. Scrabble? I love to play Scrabble. I said it. I kind of got in the mood. Let's get it. Really? You want to play? I'm all over it. Let's go. Absolutely. Okay. You don't need to play. It's better with two. Now, one of the people that's been integral to the uh, TV show Curb Your Enthusiasm, and you know who I should have had on today? I didn't think to call him uh, Kenny Kramer, who's the basis for the real-life Kramer. He's the real-life basis for Kramer and a friend of mine, a good guy. I've known him a long time. And he's the biggest expert on Seinfeld and the real-life basis for Seinfeld. He lived across the hall from Larry David. I'm going to call him today. I'll invite him on next week. And um, he said the reason that Kramer is called something other than Kenny Kramer on the show is because Michael Richards is not the first character to play Kramer, first actor to play Kramer. There was a television pilot, and they based a character on Kramer. Had nothing to do with Larry David, nothing to do with Jerry Seinfeld. And Richard Lewis played Kenny Kramer. And according to the real Kenny Kramer... This was the worst TV show he'd ever seen. And I don't remember the name of it. I'll ask Kenny about it. And so when Larry David said, we want to base a character on you and call it Kramer, he said, I'll do it on one condition. You can call it any any other first name except Ken, Kenny, or Kenneth. Because according to my friend Kenny, when he saw Richard Lewis behaving this way as uh, Kenny as Kenny Kramer, he would just cringe. So anyway, he's been great playing a fictionalized version of himself on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Wasn't in the last two seasons, but uh, but he's been great. And unfortunately, he revealed on Twitter that he has Parkinson's. And he's been diagnosed with the disease. He was diagnosed with disease the disease two years ago, but didn't break the news publicly. And he said he's under a doctor's care and everything is cool. But he did announce that he is retiring from stand-up. He says he's just going to focus on writing and acting from here on out. So I'm sorry to see that. I know some folks who have Parkinson's and live with it and have very full and productive lives. I've had family that have done that. And then I know other people that have had a very tough time. So I hope he's getting the uh, the best of care because he is as funny as they come. And it is a shame that uh, I'll, I'll, I never got to see him in stand-up in person. I've seen him in videos, but I've never gotten to see him do stand-up in person. But hey, what's my problem? What's your pro- For me, I have bad posture. I have low self-esteem. I'm unhappy about it. I, I could blame my parents. I want to blame my parents for practically everything. I Look, after high school, I said, what should I do? I have no idea what I should do. And they went, well, we think you should run away with the circus. And that wasn't good for me. 800-848-9222 if you have questions, comments, thoughts. Stevie, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Frank. Hey, Frankie, when Jerry Grote, you called him, played baseball, it was it, they always announced him as Jerry Grody. 
he was always Jerry Grody playing ball, not Grote. But they, you're it, the first one I've ever heard say that. Well, Grote. on the <laughs> on the show, they call it Grote's disease. Right. No, I agree. But you you pronounced his name as Grote, and I was wondering if they would announce the announcers. Uh, and, and baseball was saying it wrong all those years. No, no. Well, uh, you know what it is? Hey, uh, I, and okay, here's the here's the situation. Um, I'm older than you. We, well, that's that's great. You got to be very proud of that. But um, here's the situation. Grote's disease is not named for Jerry Grody. It is named for the baseball player for the Pittsburgh Pirates, Dick Grote. And uh, he was a baseball player, a two-time World Series champion, and an MVP, won a championship with the Pirates, won the batting title, and that's the basis for uh, Groach disease. And unfortunately, he did die uh, three weeks ago. So uh, clearly the Groach disease got him, unfortunately. But yes, you're, you're right. There's no, there's Dick Groat and there's Jerry Grody. Right you are, Stevie. Yeah, I- all right. Well, as far as Seinfeld, am I still on here? I don't know if you, if I'm off or not. Yeah, give it but, a shot. Uh, there's Larry David. I like Seinfeld better than in Seinfeld than a stand-up person. But Larry David, the man was a genius to me. Made me laugh every single episode of of Seinfeld and the Larry David show. Made me laugh. I know it with my friends. Everyone became so political in the last eight years. It's ridiculous that he lost Larry David himself a lot of favor with some political comments. And, you know, I thought that was kind of really, if we kept politics out of all that stuff, I swear, Larry David is the funniest guy in the world. They can't find him funny anymore because they just get mad at him. Yeah. Sort of like what they did with uh, some of the actors, you know? Yeah, I hear that, Stevie. uh, Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. But uh, not me. I would never... If I find somebody funny, the funniest person that I think is alive is Mel Brooks. And uh, I, I guarantee you Mel Brooks doesn't vote the way that I vote most of the time. But I still think it's a, he's hysterical. And I, I would never decide, oh, well, because I don't like his political comments, I'm not going to find him funny. No, I, I just I can't do that. But you know what? It's your money. You don't have to pay for HBO if you don't want to. It's your decision as a viewer, as a listener. I would just enjoy the humor, right? I mean, why? I don't understand why people need to make everything political. Now, sometimes it becomes very difficult if, like, Robert De Niro is the best example. It's not just that he disagreed with people that voted for Trump. He went out of his way to curse at Trump. I mean, uh, sometimes it's difficult to... Put yourself in and get lost in him as a character. I get that. But with Larry David, I think the show is just still hysterical. 800-848-9222. Harvey is in New Jersey. Hello, Harvey. Yes, good evening, Frank. Uh, I was calling in regard to what you said about uh, Jerry Grote or Dick Grote. And obviously someone just uh, prized you with that. So uh, I, uh, that's all I wanted to uh talk to you about, but I appreciate you getting to me and uh, enjoy your show very, very much. Thank you, Harvey. I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, that one I can't blame on on Kenneth because I looked that up uh, before before I saw that you were calling about uh, Dick Grote, uh, not not Jerry Grody. 800-848-9222. Uh, Dave is in the Bronx. Hello, Dave. 
Yes, good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, two things about Seinfeld. I didn't like the show initially and skipped most of the first season because I wasn't a fan of those stand-up bits that started and ended the show. Um, I rediscovered the show later and grew to really like it. But the uh, season, the series finale, I absolutely did not like. I didn't laugh the entire time. I've tried to re-listen to it, and I still don't get it. Um, the show itself, I can still listen to, but parts of it are hard for me because Michael Richards' character, uh, Kramer, yeah, very visual. His comedy was physical, and when you can't see it, uh, it, it, it makes it much more difficult to appreciate it. So that's my one beef with. Seinfeld now. Yeah, let me ask you this though, David. After you became a fan of the show, did you go back and watch those earlier seasons that you didn't care for initially? And then what did you think of those? You know, I still didn't enjoy the first season, to be honest. I, I thought the pacing was really off. I sure. think those those bits in the beginning and the end of the show just kind of threw it off and made the show feel rushed. I think once they got rid of that, the stories seem to be more consistent. But, uh, you know, Seinfeld grew up in Massapequa, where I grew up, so I think I had an understanding of the show um, that, unfortunately, a lot of African Americans apparently didn't watch that show. Well, and, yeah, there uh, were no black people on that show. I mean, you had Mr. Well, Wilhelm yeah. and the Exterminator. That was, uh, that was about it in terms of black people on that show. Yeah, and that's been a criticism of that show for a long time. And uh, also with Friends, which is another show which I never was able to uh, understand or appreciate. I never enjoyed Friends, and I never understood why it was so popular. Yeah, well, but, uh, and thank you, David. I I liked Friends when it was on, but I had just the opposite situation with Friends. Now, you know, once Seinfeld went off the air, I really had no reason to watch NBC on Thursday nights. I mean, it, NBC on Thursday nights was – it was – Friends at 8. It was Seinfeld at 9. Whatever would be on between Friends and um, and Seinfeld, you'd have to watch. Sometimes mad it was Suddenly you. Susan. Sometimes it was Mad About You. Sometimes it was The Single Guy. For a brief time, it was Frasier. And whatever they'd put on in that uh, slot, you'd have to watch. Sometimes it was Caroline in the City. Then you watch Seinfeld at 9. And then... At 10 o'clock, you have ER, and then whatever was on between Seinfeld and ER, you had to watch. So, you know, on a typical Thursday night, you would see, say, Friends, uh, The Single Guy, Seinfeld, Mad About You, or Caroline in the City, and then ER. You had to stick with that, um, and that was the thing. But after Seinfeld was off, I thought, all right, do I really want to watch Friends still? And a lot of people did. It just it was not for me. My wife still loves that show. She watches it all the time now. And and she'll put it on sometimes. And uh, there are moments that I find it amusing. But I find the humor so superior in both Seinfeld and uh, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. 800-848-9222. Marie is in Flanders. Hello, Marie. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. I've met Ayeda Tatura a few times in Montauk. I just wanted to share with you, she's really not heavy anymore. And <laughs> Well, that's great. Hey, I mean, uh, I'm glad she's doing well. But in that episode, she clearly was a yeah, bit heavy yeah. set. Uh, thank you, Marie. Rocco is in Saratoga. Hello, Rocco. 
Hello, Frank. Uh, just want to say a great show. It's so good. I'm going to listen to it again on podcast. I you just know, have to. that's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. You are yeah, a strong candidate so for listener of the week. Nah, come on. I'm new to this. This is the first. Uh, yesterday was the first show I ever heard. But anyway, by the way, I have three quick comments, Frank. Uh, number one, kudos to you and your producers. This you, you, your radio show is great. The producers are doing a great job with you. But uh, comment number one, Steinfeld. I was one of those guys saw the original episode. I didn't get it. I said that was a week close. Now I love it. I understand it. I don't know. I missed something the first time around. Now I understand it really cool. well. The best show ever. I still watch all the reruns on it, and it still holds up. It's that relevant. It's that fresh. It's that good. Never listen to uh, or, or watch uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Now after this, I- I'm going to watch all the episodes and see if you're right on that, Frank. Number two, let me uh, hit the uh, thing about uh, the no How can we only be up to number two? District. They're up by us over here. You know, uh, we're I feel like we're up to number eight at least. So we get all the news. Kudos to that administration for taking that action. Frank, I'm not with you there on the fact that kids need the phone there. The teachers have phones. Everyone else but the kids. Kid, a small kid with the cell phone and there's a gunner in, in the halls or something, he's, he's going to call his mom. He might hear the, the, the kid and say, hey, I hear a voice yeah, over there. Let you me know, so, Rocco, a lot, of people, a lot of people may not know what you're talking about because they're listening around yeah. the country. If people aren't familiar with what Rocco's talking about, it's about one of the local commentaries that I, that I made uh, while, uh, while at the top of the hour. So if you want to know what we're talking about and you're listening to the show on podcast, you've got to subscribe yeah. to Frank Morano Interviews and More, and you'll get to hear those local podcasts. Thanks for the nice words, Rocco. Appreciate that. All right, uh, 800-848-9 Hey, let me mention, yesterday was uh, a pretty noteworthy day. There was a fellow that uh, my buddy Obi alerted me to by the name of Jack Ryan. And uh, he lives in Dobbs Ferry, and he turned 91 years old yesterday. And he's a Korean veteran, uh, Korean War veteran. And apparently the guy still goes nonstop. He has the kind of energy that puts us all to shame. He reads the New York Post every day. I mean, I hope he's listening to this radio station every day. And he still travels. And he's going to be back in Vermont this summer where the house he was born in still stands. And so last month, at the age of 90, he made a six-hour ride to a wedding for one of his nine grandchildren. And I'll be honest, you know, I'm sure I'll be attached to my grandchildren if I'm lucky enough to have some. When I'm 90, you're coming to me. I'm not making any six-hour trips to anywhere. Um, And so after a six-hour drive to Virginia, he goes to the rehearsal dinner. The next day, he was back out with the family. Wedding was during the day. Reception was at night. And then Jack was back with the family Saturday morning. Then a six-hour drive back to Westchester. I don't know why somebody can't get this guy an airplane ticket. And the year before, at 89 years old, Jack made the 10-hour drive from Westchester to Charleston, South Carolina. Something tells me this guy likes driving. He better be a radio fan. Then he joined uh, my friend Obi and uh, their folks for dinner where he stayed so late he closed down the restaurant. So uh, happy birthday to Jack Ryan. And it sounds like your energy puts us all to shame. 
Thank you for your service. Hey, uh, JP and Brandon and uh, Mr. Haben Street and everybody that's uh, on hold, continue to hold. We'll get to you. For everybody else, if you want to try and be a thousand air, you can be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are that seventh caller, you can... Answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Answer all 10 correctly, and you will be given $1,000. Seventh caller, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose the light so much brighter? Forget all your troubles, forget all your cares, so go downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown. No final place for sure, downtown. Everything's waiting for you. You know, obviously this reminds me of the Seinfeld episode with um, George having to work on the project. And it was Mr. Wilhelm who tells him, that's where you need to go, go downtown. And it reminds me that I just said Mr. Wilhelm was black. It was not Mr. Wilhelm. It was Mr. Morgan that was black. That was the black character on Seinfeld who was very good. As was, um, as was Jackie Childs, who was, who was also black. So you had a couple of black characters. I don't know how the show took place in New York, and they only found three black characters the entire series, but... I guess uh, there are certain neighborhoods that uh, have different racial breakdowns than others. All right. Without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Let's say hello to Jerry. Hello there, Jerry. Hi, Frank. How you doing? I'm well, Jerry. Jerry, you familiar with this uh, portion of the program? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. So you know yes. what to do, right? Yeah, answer questions correctly. There you go. Let's get started. How many letters are in the word dog? Three. Who is Washington, D.C. named after? George Washington. What cable network hosted a Trump town hall meeting last week? CNN. What film won Best Picture at the most recent Oscars? Oh, God. I don't watch movies anymore. Uh, uh, There's Asian people in it, if that helps. 
I have no idea. Ah, uh, all right. It turns me off. It was everything, <laughs> everywhere, all at once. You made it up to question four, Jerry. Uh, I'm going to put you on hold. Give Kenneth your information. We're going to send you a consolation prize. So uh, sorry you didn't win, but uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta know you know at least one pop cultural question. Everything, everywhere, all at once, which I enjoyed. I enjoyed. My wife thought it was a little silly, but. Uh, I am I, into the multiverse and that whole thing. I, uh, I thought it was quite good. All right, 800-848-9222. JP in Brooklyn has been holding. Hello, JP. How you doing there, Frank? I got a funny story to tell you about Larry David. Mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I was at the Taj Mahal, which is now the Hard Rock Cafe. They have a Chinese restaurant there called Dynasty at the time. And I was sitting there eating, and Larry Davidson came in with his wife to eat, and I was with my buddy. And my buddy dared me to go up to, to Larry and say something to him. I just happened that weekend, the weekend before, they, they had an episode on Curb about Larry didn't want to give the maitre d' a tip when he came into the restaurant because he just – didn't want to do it. You know, you, you know, when you come in, you tip the guy and he gives you a table right away. For some reason, he got in his head. He just didn't want to do it. So he, he ended up not wanting to do it, and he couldn't get a table. So I went up to, to uh, Larry Dave and his wife when they're at the table because my friend dared me. And I went up to him and I said, I, I, I grabbed his hand, I shook his hand, I said, hey, Larry, I'm a big fan. I said, he says, oh, good. He says, but just make sure that you leave the waitress a tip. And he got hysterical. Oh, well, that's, a pretty, a, that's pretty clever. That's pretty clever on got, your part. He, he, he got, a, he got a, a hysterical about it. It was really funny. When I went back to the table, my friend was hysterical too. He the dare that he thought was going to work worked, but it was just funny that that episode played that weekend before about him not wanting to tip the major d. Well, that's cool, uh, I, JP. I'm and glad. I just wanted to say one thing real quick. Do Last it. night I listened to you very late, and when what's his name said to you about uh, Curtis Silver, you said who who says I don't know who that is. I got hysterical because I love that because I hate when he beats up on you. Oh. I just wanted to I just wanted to say that to you and and you, and you, and it was funny last <laughs> night when the guest mentioned. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yep. Guest, yep. You, you had on last night. Yep. You mentioned Curtis Sewer and you said, "Who?" You know. And, uh. <laughs> All right, JP. Thank you. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate that. All right. Uh, you know, it's funny that he saw Larry David in Atlantic City at the Trump Taj Mahal, now the Hard Rock, because there is, you know, a movie that was written and directed by Larry David, which I enjoyed. It was not a big hit, but it's called Sour Grapes. And a big portion of it is actually filmed in Atlantic City. And one of the other stars, the, the one of the stars of that film is Craig Bierko, who was in Boston Legal with William Shatner. See, those are the six degrees of Shatner there. Boom. Uh, 800-848-9222. Hey, let me mention this before we run out of time. A couple of people have been asking me about this uh, 
lawsuit involving um, Rudy Giuliani by this woman, Noelle Dunphy, who's accusing him of violating labor and sexual harassment law and laws against sexual assault. Well, I've read uh, a lot of it. First of all, you know, I can't be objective for uh, two reasons, three reasons, really. One, I am a great admirer of Rudy Giuliani's record in public service, uh, his record as mayor specifically. And uh, I, I, you know, I hold him in high regard as a personality. Two, uh, since the last three years that I've been working here, been kind enough to appear on the show from time to time. And uh, I would say that I've come to view him as a friend, certainly, if not a friend, a very friendly colleague. We've hung out a couple of times, and I enjoy his company very much. And I'll tell you, on a personal level, he is an incredibly nice guy, and to strangers and to colleagues alike. And I've seen him be very generous with his time and willing to take pictures with anybody that wants and I have not seen any evidence of this kind of boorish behavior that's described in this uh, lawsuit. So I uh, now that being said, I have no idea if any of the claims in this are true. What it reads to me as and this is the other reason that I really can't be objective when it comes to this Giuliani lawsuit is I am so skeptical of and I hate to say this because there are so many women who have been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted over the years. But I am so jaded by what I have seen in terms of frivolous sexual harassment lawsuits over the years. And I have seen so many instances of either consensual or inconsequential conduct being brought up as uh, sexual harassment. So uh, I view all these lawsuits a bit skeptically in the Me Too era. But I read a lot of the coverage of what Miss Dunphy is alleging. Some of it sounds like it could be pretty practical. But the whole basis for her employment uh, arrangement with Rudy Giuliani is Rudy apparently told her, I'm going to get you a million dollars. I'm going to pay you a million dollars. But it's going to be deferred. Because my crazy ex-wife is, I have to give her all my money. Now, would you ever work for someone that tells you, hey, I'm going to pay you a million dollars? Not now, but in the future. One day, after my divorce is settled. I mean, come on. I, I don't know anything about this woman, but if that's true, and I have no idea if it is, I think she's a couple aces short of a full deck. And and if you read the kind of conduct that she is alleging, the kind of uh, things that she claims that she was pressured to do, it sounds a lot like to me that these two had a long-term, consensual, friendly, and or romantic relationship. All this stuff, and I know she says she's got recordings of certain things, All this stuff that she's claiming, these uh, late-night drunken phone calls and things like that, why are you staying on the phone late at night drinking? Why are you entertaining being photographed in a bikini or without any clothes on? I don't think that's the kind of thing that you do as, as an adult. I mean, it sounds to me like she did a lot of stuff that she 
may now regret or be using as a payday. So we'll see. There's some other people trying to make an issue out of um, the claim in this lawsuit that they that he was selling pardons. I am pretty skeptical of that, too. But we'll see. We'll see where this goes. I just hate to see Rudy's reputation. It's been now on all the channels here on the, all the monitors. I hate to see Rudy's reputation be dinged in this manner. And there's no reason he should have to um, deal with this at 80 years old. And so far, based on everything I know of the guy, it is, is not in keeping with his character. But who knows? We'll see where it goes. Uh, 800-848-9222. We'll do 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is indeed the other side of midnight, but now we turn the airwaves over to you for 15 whole seconds. You get to say whatever you like at 800-848-9222. Start dialing right now, 1-800-848-9222. Just be pithy if you wish to opine as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Ray! Russell, you talk tough behind your phone. I could see you cowering in the corner if that guy Neely was acting up in the train station. You'd be shaking in your boots. Rusty. Yeah, Sid should have been a lawyer. He has the qualifications. I love him, but he's a two-faced and he's a liar. Brandon. Frank, Curtis would never steal your mug. The reason he said what he said is because almost every week you talk about somebody stealing your mug. I think you might owe him an apology. Marty. Hey, Frank, uh, if you need a Seinfeld fix, if you go on YouTube, you can catch all seasons, all the bloopers, and they are hysterical. They are quite funny. Mike. Morning, Frank. Uh, Great commentary on Seinfeld and Curb. And you got to say, your show is consistently good every day. And now that it's over, I'm going to go up on the roof and cry a little. Dave. Yes, Rudolph Giuliani showed up at my job half an hour after we closed to buy a $25 coffee pot. The employee at the door didn't recognize him and was fired the next morning because Giuliani contacted the owners to complain. Kurt. Yes, Daniel Penny deserves a medal, not handcuffs. Tony. Hey, lady, nobody gives a hoot in what you have to say about our Mayor Giuliani. Take it somewhere else and have a nice day. Thank you, uh, Tony. All right, that slams the lid on things for today. Back tomorrow with Dr. Sky. It's Dr. Sky Day. And you know who else is going to be here? We're slated to talk to her. Uh, We'll see how this goes. (laughs) Dr. Naomi Wolf. 
uh, one of the more controversial guests I think we've ever had. That could be very, very interesting. We'll see where that goes. All right. Frank Morano. Good day. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.